Yes. You hear that? No, it's not a bong. I'm making dinner. It's mashed potatoes. It's potatoes boiling, actually, for what it is. Hey, welcome everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. My name is Peter Agostin. This is The House List. Thank you for tuning in. This is my weekly podcast. Thank you again. What a special episode we have. I'm recording the intro in the kitchen because I have to make dinner at some point in time. And uh, I got to get it in to CJ to edit at a certain point in time. We got a window of time here. Got a window of time for dinner. I had a window of time to work with for my very special guest today, John Chavez, my friend. And uh, just that's my homie. I've been wanting to sit and talk to him probably since the since the inception of this podcast too. I had always hoped and intended to talk to a range of people behind the scenes in the industry. I, I know that um, some of the last few episodes have been pretty artist-driven, recording artists and, and so forth, uh, and they've all been awesome. Uh, and, and I have to say uh, thank you to all the people tuning in, checking it out. Whether it's on iTunes, which I'd love for you to subscribe on and rate it if you do like it, especially this episode, just search The Houseless Podcast. That's how it's listed on iTunes. It's also available on SoundCloud. That's another easy way to check it out. Um, the House Cl- the Houseless Podcast. Uh, that's on SoundCloud, and I've been uh, peeping that out. That's the way I can see a lot of the data. So I've been seeing all types of people listening from all over the world getting little bits here and there, different countries, a lot of people in New York City, a lot of people in Los Angeles, um, as well as intermittently throughout the country, which is fantastic. So if if you're a fan of podcasts, if you're a fan of sort of casual conversations about music in the music industry and story-driven stuff, and you know a, a buddy that's into it, then let them know about it, you know? Uh, that's uh, my little promo portion of the show. I got to try to spread the word. I'm not part of a podcast network and I don't have like a big uh, a, a publicity reach. So this is my only way of really reaching out to you. I, I try not to inundate my friends and family on things like Facebook and Instagram. But I do have a Twitter page for this. So follow us on Twitter at HouselessPod. So yes. This is our 25th episode, and yes, I finally got to talk to my friend, John Chavez, booking agent extraordinaire, one of my favorite agents, and as you might know, or rather, um, some of you may know me, or have worked with me, specifically as an agent, as a booking agent, and there's probably, you know, I've worked with a lot of them, I met many, uh, hung out and partied with with uh, my fair share, and um, but John, I, I would say, is probably... Um, Along with Michelle Cable, who was who was on the show a couple episodes back, I, I urge you to listen to that one too. Uh, he's probably one of my closest friends as an agent, and I've only really you know those are the ones for me at least whom I've worked with kind of in a close, uh, uh, direct way. And I've worked at a couple agencies before I started my own, the Augustine Agency, which is what I do now, my own boutique small agency. I have about twenty artists give or take you know the the week uh if you will and some are more active than others and uh so john is just someone i've i've known and worked with for a long time i consider a friend first but we we met at the knitting factory he was hired to be a talent buyer at the knitting factory 
uh, during the same period of time that I had been working there through our mutual friend and coworker, Chantel Hilton. Shouts to Chantel. I know she's she's peeped this out for, and I definitely will send this to her specifically to check out. So we had a, we shared some time at the Knitting Factory, um, and uh, I've always wanted to talk to John because he even at that time he ran his own booking agency called the Free Agency, and when the knit the Knitting Factory rather was um, I guess effectively closing their Manhattan location, which is where we worked at on Leonard Street, um, basically in Tribeca. Uh, he was, um, as we talked about, basically the first one hired and the first one fired. And uh, he was able to shift back into a, a traditional booking agency role at Ground Control Touring, which he remains to this day now as not just a senior agent, if you will, but as a vice president of the company. But if you're just tuning in and you're like, you have no idea who he is, especially if you don't work in like the live touring arena, whether you're also an agent or a promoter, talent buyer, or a band, or uh, you work at Live Nation or AEG or Golden Voice, so on and so forth, then the casual listener and fan uh, may know him more more so through the bands that he, he works with and the bands that he's established as touring artists over the years. And it's like a long list, a lot of great experimental noise uh, afflicted groups but just a lot of great rock bands too um i know right now he's on a tear most recently with the chicago based band uh, whitney but you know i would say john is synonymous with the success of deer tick woods waves vivian girls um fucked up real estate wild nothing which we talk about and that guy's from blacksburg which was amazing and i needed to ask some questions about that at blacksburg virginia is what i'm talking about that's where i was born and raised um and also he was just instrumental in um as an agent you know associated with uh, uh two very seminal record labels captured tracks and woods this so we we just uh we go in on that and we just talk about his life uh um he went to Grinnell College and then he interned at Kill Rock Stars and our time at the Knit. And, you know, what's the most crazy part of it all, if you will, is that like less than a week ago or about a week ago from the day that we recorded it. And that was a couple hours ago now that I'm recording this intro. Is that John was in Jamaica with his girlfriend and was like in a freak car accident and uh, his his uh, his car that he was in um, hydroplane spun out of control and was hit by another car in, the, in the oncoming traffic at 50 miles an hour and the, he they both were in the hospital and sustained um, injuries and it's just uh, this was you know so we we actually talked about it too it was just such a incredible near tragedy and they're both okay thank God. And it's truly a blessing. And so we kind of end on that. So I'm not going to go on and on and on describing our conversation because we had a long one. It was an in-depth one. It's some booking agent type stuff, you know, it's for the other agents out there, promoters and so forth. And I wanted to do something special for our 25th episode. Yes. As I said in the beginning, 
This is our 25th episode of the house list. The house list. If you if you're not hip to the reason where, where the concept behind the the title itself is, is you know a very well known and used term in you know live music uh, industry as far as like where your name is you know and I've I've said this at the beginning of every show basically so so the people that are usually find themselves on the house list you know at you know any given show tend to be say other promoters or publicists or people from the record label not always other agents because you know you never know you're not trying to get your group poached from you excuse my peas i need to i need to move the mic when i say my peas peter Augustine podcast don't don't poach my bands stuff like that so and another thing the first time you know i wanted to do this also to align with south by southwest which is happening you know as we speak and this will be an episode if you're if you're down in south by you know enjoy be safe it's been a couple of years since i was there um and uh, maybe i'll be there next year but the very first time i ever went was with john and uh it was a super memorable time and i always look kind of look back fondly at the, during that 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 period of time i've been many times since but uh, my first time rolling down there was with john and Chantel for the knitting factory basically as representatives of the club so this is this this is our south by southwest episode in a kind of roundabout way as only the house list can do you know as i as i get closer back to the yes the potatoes mashed potatoes I'm gonna turn this off because it looks like they're about done. I made a round uh, roast, and uh, I'm experimenting with the Henry Bain sauce. I don't know if you guys know about that. Uh, if you're from Louisville, Kentucky, you might. We'll see how that turns out. It's in the fridge. Anyway, once again, I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. You can catch the houseless on iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Stitcher app. It's also on Google Play. Please tell a friend to tell a friend if you're into it. Pass it along. Subscribe. Re- repost it. You know, um, if you have a blog or a website, feel free to, to, to post it up there. It's free for you. You don't have to pay for it. We're just sharing stories. And John has an incredibly cool story. I was very grateful for him to share um, his, you know, life story with us. So without any further ado, let's check out my, my chat with my homie, um, the one and only John Chavez here on The House List. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, I'm trying to figure out a way to like start this conversation too, because one, um, we've already been talking for a little bit before we started recording, and that um, that we both like worked like for the couple of days leading up to this too. I've been trying to figure out like what the entry point of of starting this mm-hmm. talk would be, because uh, we worked together in the same. We were employed by the same company, so that's like a yeah, place so that we like could the big, start. The big shared history is that we both, yeah. we both spent formative years at the knitting factory. But like, yeah, you know, it's funny to think about though because like we've been friends for years since then, and yep. all of that good stuff. But at the same time, like I worked at the knitting factory for like four months, three months, <laughs> right? Like it, it seems like, a lot longer. It much seems longer. like a long time. And we spent a lot of, like a lot of hours in that building and a lot that of is hours true. and a lot of hours at that bar. But like, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. For that three or four months, it was kind of like all day and then into the night every day. For, yeah. Uh, but I know that leading up to that, you had already done, you'd been doing a bunch of stuff. And yeah. then from that job, from the knitting factory, you then stepped into a whole new, like, uh, 
or a continuation of what you had been doing. So for me, it's like trying to like figure out the best uh, starting point because mm-hmm. you are also in an interesting position where you had been working as a booking agent first, yeah, and then then at the knitting factory you took on a talent buyer role, yeah, which is kind of a rare move. Yeah, it's like to, it's 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 not super often that someone moves from like that side of the desk to the talent buyer side. No, not at all. Um, so, but I had been working as an agent for years at that point. So I had the free agency, like my old agency. And, uh, I moved out to New York in October, 2006 and was running the free agency full as full time as you can be when you're like in New York and broke and like on the hustle. So, right. <laughs> So I pretty much did anything that I could find for money. So I like fell in with like Todd P super quickly and really like cut my teeth like would go set up shows, learn how to put the PA together at his shows, you know, especially with Todd. Oh, really? Yeah, with Todd's stuff like gear was coming from all different places. He was running down to Canal Street to like buy speakers and put right. and put stuff back together. So working at Todd's show at that era where it was like um, like Uncle Polly's was getting used all the time. Do you remember uh-huh. that? Spot? I, I remember. I can't visualize it to save my life. It, it's, it was in Williamsburg or Greenpoint. It right? was in Greenpoint, and it was a like diner right next to the huge like the shit factory, like the oh the, really yeah, like yeah. the sanitation yeah plant? the sanitation plant. So there's when they were building it, and so the diner was open daytime hours only for the construction crews that were working on building that factory oh, yeah, I know. before it opened. That, I know that area. I'm trying to picture that room because I don't think I ever saw a show there. It was, uh, it, I mean, it was like, I feel like it might have been like a food truck or trailer and they built kind of a permanent wow. thing around it. And like, it, like the building was like kind of Frankenstein together. Right. And then Todd somehow met Polly, I guess was the dude's name, who, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. who owned it and would pay to rent it out at night and throw shows there. And uh what were the shows? What were you were these at this point were you like bringing free agency bands like your early bands to this or it was more like you were helping assisting him set up the show and stuff? Um I would mean I was very much working for him at that point. So oh, okay. I mean like the free agency existed and I would do my like I the way that I knew Todd P was that I was always trying to talk him into doing shows for like Barr or Marnie Stern or whoever I was working right. with who at that point even though that scene became something that Todd was was doing more and more at that point it was kind of the older generation of New York bands that like Todd, what would be a good example of like that? so my big connection with Todd the first I think one of the first shows that he ever put on for me is uh was an X models show oh yeah so mm-hmm. when the free agency existed and I still when I was living in Olympia before I moved to New York X model I started working with X models through a connection with them through the kill rock stars people right. so like there was an X model side band named the Seconds that uh, put out a record on Five RC, which was Kill Rock Stars like a uh, experimental label, and, right. and that was the label that put out my band's music the and punks. the punks, yeah, yes. and put out uh, music by the kind of the bands that I gravitated more towards, you know, like Acceptor and Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice and No Neck Blues Band. Yes, uh, so. <clears throat> The X like X models were the first band that I worked for that like consistently would make like five hundred dollars a show or a thousand dollars a show where right. I felt like okay 
Like, That's legit. Like, I'm making commission off this, like, and it's actual money. Like, it's not me, like, hustling up someone to, like, have a show play to six people, and at the end of the night, the guy's like, we lost 45 bucks. Sorry, dude. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Because 10% of negative 45 does not pay the rent. No. No. <laughs> Never has. So I knew Todd from, I guess that was my connection, was through, kind of through that scene of dudes, and... Um, but yeah, I moved to New York. I had no money. I had like two suitcases. I was subletting a room in Greenpoint that um, this dude, Sorab, it was his apartment. Um, Sorab Nafisi, I think his name was his name. And he ran a label called Dublin Cube Records. That, I don't remember that one. And he put out the Measles, Mumps, Rubella record, and I was their agent. And so he had hit me up, or was just kind of like, keep your ears out for, you know, if someone wants to sublet a room in my apartment. I was like, I moved to New York. Oh wow! So you were in you were at you were in Olympia. I was in Olympia, time. yeah. And so then I and I, uh, it became clear that my time in Olympia was kind of ending. Like the relationship that I was in was winding down. Like I had had a bit of a falling out with the with Slim and at Kill Rock Stars. It was just kind of yeah. time to move. And plus, the bands that I was really excited to work for that weren't associated with the record label were all based in New York or New York adjacent. Right. So it was time for me to move out here. And so, yeah, so I ended up following with Todd P, but then I'd book some shows with him, you know, my bands playing a Todd P show. But at that point it was like, all right, you need a sound guy, 50 bucks. Let's do it. Oh, cool. (laughs) You you were doing a little bit of everything. Yeah. Cleaning up afterwards, going to the, you know, going to the bar after that, like, you Mm -hmm. know, so, um, yeah, because that, that's something that I wanted to ask you about, too, because uh, obviously, you know, there's no information about the free agency like that's available online anymore. Yeah. I remember the website had like a, it was like a black page with white letters or something. It was a yeah. darker hue in your roster because you still, it was still active when we were at the Knitting Factory. Yeah. So when we were at the Knitting Factory together, so I started, so I moved here in 2006, October. Moved into the Silent Barn uh, in M- March or April 2007. Okay. Uh, the Silent Barn being like a, a venue that yeah. was often used by Todd P. and a lot of some other per- yeah, promoters. And, and primarily Todd, though. Primarily Todd. So Todd was. So there was four of us that lived in the Silent Barn, and then Todd was like the fifth silent partner. So he actually paid part of the rent. Oh, cool. Uh, and then would put shows on there, and then we put on our own shows as well. Um, and then when Market Hotel, be- you know, came into existence, Todd did most of his stuff over at Market, and right. then we kind of just ran Silent Barn and put on shows. And that was a really messy era of shows. I know. I remember. Well, I remember too because I, when I, you know, I lived in Bushwick for a long time, mm-hmm. and I moved to New York in 2005, and was. You know, Wilson Avenue, Knickerbocker area, the Wilson Avenue stop on the L train, which yeah. obviously has changed a ton since back then. But Silent Barn technically was like the closest venue for me to walk to, even though it was like kind of a pain in the ass, yeah, like half like a, an hour walk. Like but, a gnarly, dangerous, not yeah. close walk. But yeah, we were at the Halsey stop. So it was right. like, you know, not that, you know, one stop before two. St- yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really like, yeah, I think one train stop and then. and But those, uh, but those stops are far away and yeah. in a desolate walk between them. <laughs> uh, big time, especially then, like 2006 and seven. like, yeah, it was like, there was nothing in between. But I do remember the going to the shows when you lived there, because mm. basically when you enter the, the venue, 
there's like a corridor and then you get to the performance space um, and you know the people that live there their bedrooms are all along that hallway that corridor yeah so that corridor kind of wound through the venue in a weird way it like went straight and then to the right, right. and then like kind of emptied out into the kitchen slash living room slash showroom so like everything just oh, kind yeah, of got there through. was a kitchen there I <laughs> forgot about that yeah, yeah, like the shows played out in front of the kitchen counter, and then you know there's like the photos of that crazy deer hunter show where like Bradford's like wearing a dress, like standing on the kitchen counter, and I think it was like Moses who was in Deer Hunter, like put his head under the dress, and the big thing was like he got a blowjob <laughs> on stage. Yeah, I remember hearing <laughs> about that. That's hilarious. But uh, but yeah, so my <laughs> bedroom was the oh, when you walk down that corridor, it was on the left side. And yep. uh, is now what is the bar at Transpicos, which cracks oh, no me way. up every single time I go to Transpicos because my bedroom, like, I kept it pretty clean. We kind of used it as the office for most of the shows. Uh-huh. I ran the agency out of there. So I had, like, a lofted bed with a little, like, workstation underneath it. Had uh-huh. all of the houses, like, money and all that stuff there. Would do, like, the countouts at the end of the night. But it was pretty much, like, not a party zone like you know maybe i'm in there like drinking a beer playing like nintendo like (laughs) but like there wasn't you know there wasn't a lot of raging that went on there and now every time i would go to transpicos and like that space is the bar i'm like no 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 booze in this zone (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny because i haven't i haven't been there since the new it's now transpicos so yeah which used to be silent barn um yeah, because I want to try to even track it back just a little bit further to mm. the agency itself. Um, yeah. Just a little bit. Because that's, you know, hearkening back to a totally different era of, like, you know, quote-unquote independent music. Or it, it's definitely, like, it was a big part of, like, experimental noise bands of, like, mm. the mid-2000s, too. Like, this was all started in Olympia. Right. Yeah, so I'll give you, like, the sort of, like, step-by-step on how it yeah. all came together. So, you know, I grew up in L.A., California. Yes. Um, grew up on the west side, which is kind of, like, even at that point, was, like, an island unto itself in L.A. Like, there wasn't very much cool stuff going on on the, right. on the west side of L.A. There wasn't the there wasn't clubs, really, sure. that I, I mean, that I knew about. There were, like a cool, like, a few cool bands that were, like, around that were... Like when you were in high school? Yeah, when I was in high school. Like the, I mean, like probably the the coolest band that was that was around. That was like I went to Santa Monica High School, so like that were kids that were associated with the high with that at that school were like the Grown Ups, which were they were on sympathy wow. for the record industry. Yeah, and, no, the label. I don't remember that band though. Yeah, so like Eric from Hole produced their debut album and they like opened for Sonic Youth once and that was oh, like huge. that was cool they were like five girls it was like just awesome you know like oh, yeah. to have the that around but I just like got super into um you know mostly like like riot girl feminist punk rock was like the music that I got was drawn to oh, at yeah. that point and so with that you know you get into Bikini Kill and then at of that course. point when, like Slater Kenny was like starting and Slater Kenny became like my favorite band of all time yeah I would like anytime they were near LA like I was there one year for my yeah. birthday I like bought all my friends tickets to the show because I was like we gotta oh, go yeah. to this show and like, my friends are like uh alright <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> do you remember where it was that was at the Roxy that was oh, like cool. the Hot Rock release tour so that was like 1999 oh. so I was just super into music had a job at that point so i had money to like have a car buy gas go to shows buy right. records like i was just i just lived for it and so i was a fan of the kill rock stars label 
Yeah, I mean, living in Santa Monica, too, you got to kind of, like, troop it out kind of far to get to shows, too, right? Yeah, the closest place to see a show was the Troubadour. So, like, you know, on, like, Santa Monica Boulevard, like, the, the west side of West Hollywood. Right. And when a band played the Troubadour, that meant that they were, like, huge. Like, Hell the Troubadour yeah. <laughs> was, like, the cool room. Like, Golden Voice, I think, was still doing most of the shows there, and, like, uh-huh. most of the cool shows. But, like, I, like uh, I remember when, like, the makeup would come to town. That it was, was like, an event. Like, right. the makeup would play two nights at the Troubadour, which was, like, unheard of. Yeah. Every kid, like, every cool kid around L.A. would, like, put on their, like, tight pants and, like, white belts and, like, do their hair. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you'd go, like, see the makeup play, and you would just be, like unbelievable experience there's like this band they're like a super tight like four piece they yeah. we used to wear these like every tour it felt like they had like a different like color crushed velvet suit mm. so there was like on one tour and it was like these like royal blue like beautiful suits and like Ian's Venonius is like walking on the crowd's head and all this stuff and yeah and then, uh, I remember when they had like a fifth member join the band and everyone's like not cool anymore like, <laughs> new guy yeah. whatever that's hilarious <laughs> they were in like red velvet suits for that tour <laughs> like, right yeah I think he's such a showman yeah. too you know? yeah totally but uh so I was always just like a fan of music and like dabbled with playing music and just never really nothing ever really stuck like it was you know we had like band practice in a friend's garage and would like cover some Weezer songs and so, right. you know, that was so you were playing guitar? I was playing uh, I played, mostly played bass at that point oh I, cool for whatever reason when I was a kid I was like I'm gonna play the bass guitar because I've always known you as a guitarist yeah too uh, so I played music and it was fun and then I went away to college I went to Grinnell College in Iowa and yeah so you did Grinnell you did two you went to two schools then right no no I just went to Grinnell oh I see I lived in Olympia but never did Evergreen but uh, okay but I think that because I lived in Olympia for a little bit people were like oh you went to Evergreen right. that's <laughs> what I thought that's what I thought I thought you went to both Grinnell College and to Evergreen which would have been a crazy double entendre of like uh, you know um, crazy art schools liberal art schools no no so I never so I went to Grinnell and uh, Grinnell is a is a crazy place like it is I bet tell me about it it's super isolated it's in the middle of Iowa it's um, you know liberal arts school it's part of like the whole there's like seven like sister schools or something like that Mm. that are all related to each other so if a kid's parents teach at one of the other schools they can go to any of the schools for free so there's lots of oh. like, professors kids from different parts of the country i mean that's how i know nick zirko like his parents are yes. professors at the college of booster i see okay. um, you know like so there's uh you know it's like a pretty privileged crew of people who are going to the school the school also um i don't know if they still do but at the time had a mandate where they were going to be 10 to 15 percent cheaper than other similar schools hmm. they kept the tu- tuition a little bit lower and they also had a need blind admissions policy so if you could demonstrate that you actually need the money the school would cover it so there's oh. lots of kids on financial aid there's a lot you know it's a like a mixing pot like the people who come coming from all over the country living in this tiny town town had like six or seven thousand people school yeah the school had like 1200 people how did you even uh, find out about it? There was a girl who was a year older than me in high school. Who was we were both in like the journalism program or like journalism class in high school. Cool. And she went there, 
And so that's how I knew about what it was. And for whatever reason, I like built it up in my mind. I was like, uh-huh. oh, it's this wild place. It's in Iowa. I'm going to like fly out there. It's going to have like vintage cars driving around. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't just in Iowa in my mind. It was like Iowa in like 1955. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. And um, so when I was applying to colleges, I didn't know where I wanted to go other than I didn't want to be in L.A. Right. And uh, so I applied to like NYU and didn't get in. I applied to Yale and did get in. I applied. Oh, wow. Yeah. I applied to Grinnell and got in. And Grinnell sent me a plane ticket to come out and visit it. Oh, shit. That's what's up. Yeah. And I went and like that weekend there was like a awesome punk show i like played in the open mic at the school coffee shop i just basically had a really good time yeah and was just kind of like all right cool like this i've grew up in a city i'm probably gonna live in a city i know that i'm gonna at that point i knew i was gonna be involved in music in some way like music ruled my entire life yeah this school is kind of a crazy place where i felt like i had a fulfilling time there for like the weekend that i was there i'm gonna go and worst case scenario, like it doesn't work out. It's college; you transfer. Like it's not a huge deal, right? <laughs> that's yeah. That's a good way to look at it. And so I went. And so the school, as part of their, um, because it's in the middle of nowhere, and the there's not a lot of opportunities for like you know arts and culture stuff. They give a big budget to the student government uh, for there's like a movie theater on campus. They bring in movies, oh, and cool. then, but. Concerts. They have like a big budget for concerts. SGA, right? SGA, yeah. Hell yeah. And so my freshman year, Carter Adams, who you know went right. on to become an agent at Windish, was right. the concerts chair. Oh really? And he was putting he was putting on the shows. I immediately like me and all my friends went and signed up for like the concerts committee to do you know putting together the PAs, making sure the bands had like right. you know beer and food and like running little scams like to, to volunteer you know. and stuff, yeah. right? And no, but it, the thing with the college was that it wasn't a volunteer. Like, you would go and work these shows, and at the end of the month, you'd be like, I work 20 hours. And I'd be like, all right, here's your, you know, $4.15 towards <laughs> your, like, student loan or whatever. Oh, wow. You know, like, so you awesome. Would, yeah. So you were getting paid for this stuff, and you got to be around these musicians that would tour through and uh, be involved in all of that. And so my <clears> – <throat> at the end of my – freshman year I kind of hit up Carter and was like I want to do what you do like what how do I get this job and he I think at that point was like the next year was gonna go and do a semester abroad so he couldn't have the concerts chair job the following year because mm-hmm. you have to be there for the full year right and so I ran is like an elected thing so I ran and won the election wow and so I did it nice. as a sophomore wow which was uh I mean what are you all of like 20 years old or something like that yeah I guess I was 19, 20. Yeah. (laughs) And so my sophomore, starting my sophomore year, I was involved for bringing concerts to campus. And the way that I kind of looked at it was I wanted to bring as many shows as possible and book as many bands as I could instead of having like a couple small shows and then one huge one at the end of the semester. Which is kind of like the traditional things. A lot of schools do bigger schools. schools are like, all right, we're going to spend like 25 grand on one show. And then like, a couple grand on like a, on a couple other shows and for me and the way that I wanted to do stuff in my mind that made most the most sense was like right. try to have something every weekend yeah and so it was just constant like booking bands and then at that point you know being the student who's running this committee you're directly in contact with like all these people's booking agents sure and so like 
I was in touch with Eric Dimenstein, who like owns Ground Control. Right. I was in touch with Jim Romeo. I was in touch with like at that point, like uh, it was before like the Windish Agency had started. But like Tom was like, what was it called? Bug Booking. Bug? Well, well, I, well, I think he was at Billions at that point. Oh right, he worked at Billions. And right. the, but then there was also the the. The way that the booking agencies worked in like in the indie rock world was just kind of different. There were lots of small independent companies, you know, like uh, yeah, like Trey Many had Arrow Booking, and Adam Voith mm. was there with him for a while. Then right. Adam went and started Decorporated. You know, Cork Agency was probably Course, the biggest thing of the that game. Was, <laughs> yeah, they were killing it at that period of time. Yep, um, that was really the first agency I think I, I booked shows from, mm. if, if memory serves. Yeah, and so like Cork was going at that point, you know, Inland Empire was like a huge deal at that yes, point. Robin like, Taylor. Robin had like a you know like a super sick roster and she's like this like hard ass, like bossy woman, like throwing <laughs> it down, booking modest mouth shows. And, right. and at that point, you know, I'm a college kid. Half of the people who asked me about shows are like book modest mouse. Like, oh yeah. You know? <laughs> like, Definitely. And uh like I remember, Little Big Man booking still existed uh-huh. then. So Marty Diamond before he went to like uh, to Paradigm or Monterey Peninsula, you know, yeah. however that all folded together. So there was lots of these small little companies, and then here's me as a kid, like cold calling these people, you know, cold calling like Ellen Stewart from Go Ahead booking, being like, I want to book Yola Tango or whatever, you know, like yeah. This is what 2002. This or? is 2000. Uh, so yeah, I graduated high school in 01. So this would have been, I would have been getting going on that fall 2002 summer 2002 yeah. to get the fall semester which is like a pretty setup. important period of time for booking agencies booking agencies as a whole because it was like when all these boutique agencies were really thriving yeah and there were only a couple like the larger ones weren't paying necessarily paying attention to some of the groups that now you know the the dynamic of the booking agency industry has changed a lot obviously there's been mm. countless mergers and baby bands have a different kind of value than they did in the early 2000s too yeah well then there's also like you know at that point we're 10 plus years removed from like the heyday of like college rock you know as a sort of genre sort of thing you know like grunge kind of wiped all that stuff out but at that point like the idea of like indie rock or like punk rock was still on a business side like still pretty completely separate from the mainstream and right around then at least in my eyes and maybe it's skewed a little bit because this is also when I started to get more involved with the business mm-hmm. that's at when that's when you kind of had like the mainstreamification of like indie rock in general when you have like right. you know movies like Garden State coming out like and right, all of a sudden right. like the Postal Service is like the hottest band in like the rock and roll dance club which mm-hmm. now doesn't even really exist anymore right right right, right. <laughs> um but yeah so at that point, I was at the college booking these shows, booking shows constantly in touch with all these different booking agents and um, playing in bands myself. And did you understand the, or how did you pick up on on being able to send an offer? Like, was that did Carter yeah, kind of so walk Carter, you through? So it Carter like trained me in the idea of sending an offer, but it's you know it's a college that has tons of money, right. so it's a bit different than like building an offer for a club show. Sure, of course. And so like my big favorite example that I love to throw out, you know, as I mentioned before, like Slater Kenny are like my favorite band of all time. Yeah, and. Uh, at that point, I think Bob Lawton was booking Slater Kenny. Um, so he ran Legends of the 21st Century, which was kind of the precursor to ground control touring. Both Jim mm. Romeo and Eric D 
worked for Bob Lawton. Oh, wow. And, yes. it, was, and uh, it was a small agency based here in New York. And I feel like I might have even been dealing with Jim Romeo on the show. I can't really remember. Right. But I was like, I want to book a Slater Kitty show. Like, what's it going to cost? And he was like, all right, it's going to cost $5,000. Oh, like shit. As like the highball or whatever. Wow. And I was like, oh, I need to book this band. They're my favorite band. So I sent over a $6,500 offer. Nice. And so they confirmed it right away. Because it was more than they asked for, dude. And for me, it. I'm You're like born for that. I was like, I'm spending sixty five hundred dollars of not my money to right. s- to see my favorite band play in Grinnell, Iowa, instead of having to drive to Iowa City or right. or Lawrence or wherever else bands used to play. Yeah, which is what you probably had to do otherwise, right? Iowa City was probably the closest place. Right? Yeah, Iowa. Yeah, yeah Grinnell is uh, equidistant between Des Moines and Iowa City. Oh, so Des Moines. They're, so they're both like an hour away from each other but Iowa City with the university there kind of got right. the you know had Gabe's Oasis of course like famous club yes still standing <laughs> to this day and then uh, and then uh, the university had Scope Productions which is uh, mm. a lot of agents and promoters have come out of that over the years but it's kind of like the university's large scale like concert promotions thing yeah. where they would do traditional ticketed shows and I think supplement the band's fees with some sort of college stipend but right like, like a combination of the yeah, two. Yeah, so like I remember driving out in like 2002 or whatever to like see Wilco play an auditorium on Iowa City or at, yeah. at the University of Iowa campus. It's like a ten dollar ticket or a five dollar ticket or something like that, or is it? I think it was expensive enough that I complained right. about the entire time because I'm not a Wilco fan. But right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So I'm in college. I'm booking these bands, booking these shows, getting a feel for talking to agents, starting to have those relationships, not knowing that that was going to come in to, in handy down the line. And I'm still a huge fan of like the Kill Rock Stars record label and yeah. their vibe. So I sent an email to Slim, who owned Kill Rock Stars, and was like, "Hey, you you have interns? Like, what's up? Can I intern for you?" And he was like, "Oh, I only do interviews in person." And I made plans to meet up with him at CMJ in New York. Cool. At the Knitting Factory. Ah, very <laughs> and interesting. Had, and had a uh, little job interview with him for an internship at the Knitting Factory. Um, like, maybe it was like all the way down. At the, that point, the tap room, like the middle room, had a wall. There was like a separate showroom at, from the bar. Yes. And we, yes, I remember. And it was because like, the old office was still an office at yeah, that yeah. point in time, probably, right? And so we met in like some dark, dank hallway in the tap room area of the Knitting Factory during wow. a Kill Rock Stars uh, CMJ showcase, where I remember seeing like Shuju and Deerhoof and Hella play, wow. and just being like, "What is going? Like, what is what, what is this music? Like, <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah. yeah, like Hella especially, like you know Zach Hell yeah, just of course going." Ham, but uh, yeah, Hella was such a great band. They're such a they were like road warriors too at that time. They were like, yeah, touring force. But Slim's wife, Portia, who now runs Kill Rock Stars, went to Grinnell, and so mm. she was like, mm. Oh, you should give this kid an internship. He's a Grinnell kid, and that was my in. So wow. he offered me an internship. He was like, All right, if you can come out to Olympia during a summer, sure, you can work for free. <laughs> wow, and so it was like, Yours did. Your, when you after you graduated or something? No, so I did that every summer that I was in college in Iowa, I would go to Olympia for the summer and intern and work odd jobs. Wow. And at that point, Kill Rock Stars was really like exploding as a 
record label, you know, like the Decemberists really like caught on really big. Yeah. At that point, they still had uh, like Slater Kenny and Elliot Smith stuff. He had left and went to the major label, but they still, they had, still had the material, had, right? Yeah, they still were putting out like Either Or, which they just did the 20th anniversary issue right. of this week. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Um, and so the label was like based in a little house in Olympia and like moved to an office downtown. I had like a warehouse. There's like a staff of 10 people uh, at least. There were like three dogs that hung out at the office all the time. It was like oh, a classic. It was like a cool, cool place. And I was just so stoked to like be in Olympia for the summer and out of Iowa and like working at this record label. Was the China Clipper still, was that, do you remember this venue in Olympia? Yeah, the The China China Clipper. The China Clipper was around and only really occasionally did shows, it felt like. Uh, I feel like I went to a few karaoke nights there and saw like a couple different uh, shows there. But at that point, like the house scene in Olympia, like the house show scene was still like, you know, there's like Red House, which is like a classic punk house that had been around since like the early 90s. There's a Lucky Seven house, which was another one that had been around forever. Mm. And at that point, you know, being 19, 20, 21 in Olympia, you start to know the people who are living in those houses. Sure. And so, you know, we were just there hanging out. Well, yeah, and then you're not really going, you're not as apt to be going to a bar anyway. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. The only reason I even asked about the China Clippers is that I played there one time. Yeah. I DJed there one time. <laughs> and, uh, but I do know that scene, having lived in Humboldt, too. I mean, mm-hmm. there, is a, there is, like, you know, some... Um, I would say, yeah. I mean, like, the Arcata Humboldt vibe and the Olympia Evergreen vibe. Yeah. Definitely. Especially uh, during that time, too, because a lot of those bands that were playing house shows, would, uh, Arcata and Eureka mm-hmm. would be on that, that circuit. Of yeah, playing. I mean, at that point in touring, when you're talking about, like, just the end of like the fanzine era and beginning of the internet era where bands would go on more sort of like hyper localized like a you know a a west coast tour could be like three weeks long and you'd be playing you know besides you know playing arcada you'd be playing you know davis with the university there and the kdvs radio station you'd be playing somewhere in in central california fresno or visalia for sure you'd like you know Every single town on the coast, like Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, Goleta, yeah. California. You know, yeah, like, wow, yeah. Got to hit, like, the Che Cafe, you know? like yeah. all. Of the- <laughs> yes, oh, man. It's been a long time but, since like, I heard that one. Now, But now, with touring being more of, like, a national focus sort of thing, right. like, bands play the, the major markets and that's it. Like, I mean, I remember Eugene, Oregon being, like, seeing it on every band's tour dates oh, forever, yeah. you know, everyone playing the Wow Hall. and yeah. Recently, one of my bands was like, "Hey, can we play the Wow Hall?" And I'm like, "I guess I'll have to find a contact." <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's interesting. And but yet, still, like, it's funny because like, it's like relegated where the genres have kind of shifted to where they play now too. Whereas like, hip hop and jam bands still will go to Eugene when they probably didn't. I mean, maybe jam bands did, but whereas like it used to be a rock town for a while, yeah. and then that was something I wanted to talk about. To you, to you as well, like maybe a little later on, but mm-hmm. just really too, as the years go by, in in the in the kind of landscape of booking tours has evolved and changed a lot, and and uh, how certain cities or uh, secondary markets and stuff will will be like 
like a particular genre would be thriving for quite a for a while for a series of years, and then after uh, a period of time, it's no longer you can't find a show or do a show there anymore. Yeah. Like some of like now, I'm not taking shots at any of these cities. It's really just more of an observation for my own booking. It's like a cyclical thing. Yeah, like 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 a place like Baltimore or Pittsburgh or even like Vancouver Mm -hmm. or Chicago, where certain stuff worked for a while, Mm -hmm. and then it's just like whether it's a combination of the venue or the book talent buyer or promoter, Mm -hmm. or it's just the trends in music and people age out of stuff. I'm just seeing that more and more. Yeah, I mean, you think about like a town like Montreal, where like. When I was getting going and booking, and you know maybe like uh, Michelle Cable could speak more to this than me because it was like more in the genre, like the niche that she was working in. But mm-hmm. for a while, like my impression of Montreal was, I had like the super like fried out art punk shows, like gnarly, like right. uh, you know like AIDS Wolf and that collective right. of people were like going strong. I, I mean, I played a show, a couple shows there that were just kind of like all these like art damaged kids like going nuts. And now it feels like if you have a band that has guitars, it's like not popping. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's such a trip, man. <laughs> like so I, I have like big tours that route around that market sometimes because it's like between the devaluation of the Canadian dollar versus right. the American dollar, between dealing with the border stuff, and now he knows how that shit's going to go like post Trump. Right. But right. like. All of these, uh, and then like the show, just in general, being, uh, you know, having to charge too much money for tickets to make up the shortfall, and like the with the Canadian dollar situation, which makes your show worse, or like liquor laws, where like doing an all ages show is actually very hard, and like something, you know, there's all these these things kind of like come together in a perfect storm of like, well, I guess we're going to skip this city for now. Right. <laughs> I feel like, too, like people, uh, like, depending on if they need to play New York on a Friday or a Saturday, the, Montreal always ends up being a Monday, yeah. too. So it's like, they kind of, like, messed up the market that way, too, yeah, maybe. I, mean, I feel like I, with my booking philosophy, though, when it comes to New York stuff, like... You skip the weekends? I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't mess with the weekends in New York if I can help it, unless, like, a band specifically wants it, or there's another reason right. to do it, because... You know your New York show or your Brooklyn show is going to be popping off. Right. And you know it's going to go crazy on a Tuesday or on a Friday. Right, right, right. Couldn't you use that Friday in Providence and have a good show there instead of having no one show up? So. <laughs> yeah, very true. Because the Tuesday in Providence definitely yeah. is not, not going to happen for yeah. most. Unless you're maybe Deer Tick or yeah. something like that. Exactly. Um, so, okay, so then what, just really quickly, what was establishing the free agency? Because that, that was, yeah, so ended up having a full roster. As a, yeah, so was, I moved to Olympia full-time right after I graduated college. Like, graduated in May 2005. I think I started in Olympia, like, June 1st. Like, I was just like, all right, moving out wow. there. And myself and Slim Moon and um, Josh Bloom, who owned Fanatic Promotion at that time. Right. Um... Slim had an interest in starting a booking agency for, you know, or an in-house sort of booking service at the label to help out with the bands on the label who didn't necessarily have agents of their own. If you're someone like The Gossip or The Decemberists or whatever, like, you don't have a problem getting a booking agent. Sure. But at that point, the label had expanded tremendously. 5RC, which was kind of like Slim's more experimental offshoot thing that put out, like, a couple records a year at that point was carrying a full roster of bands. The label wow, had yeah. income coming in from these big releases and was spending it on the smaller releases. So these bands that were in the more experimental world or smaller bands 
actually had real budgets to go to the studio or like hire hire like someone fancy to do the artwork or like have a music video and all this stuff and the booking agent side like having an agent help those bands go on tour was the one part of the industry that didn't wasn't staying in pace in with how quickly the label was growing so he had like half of the roster of bands had no agent to help them go on the road at that point touring was still the main way that bands went out and made their name and and sold records and stuff so it was establishing themselves on the road so it was important for uh, those bands to be touring whether they had agents or not so if touring was something that the label could offer them as well then cool so I basically worked at Kill Rockstars the free agency was established as a separate company um it was originally supposed to be a tr- part of a trio of companies that all had sports pun names. Uh-huh. So Slim started a management company with uh, Porsche that was called Shot Clock Management. And Shot the, Clock Management? Yeah. Okay. And then I think there was going to be maybe like a record label called like Turf Records. I don't know if that ever happened. Hmm. But Because uh, look, I mean, obviously the, the agency doesn't has long since, yeah. you know, no longer exists. But I mean, you know, when you when you try to search online oh, for the, the free, free agency, agency. Yeah. it's of course it's all it's all sports, it's all yeah, yeah, trade yeah. rumors and stuff. Yeah, the only way you, if you go on like the internet wayback machine thing, you can punch in free agency booking was our was the URL, right. and like you can pull up like a semblance of the old website. Oh no way! Really? No, that, I gotta do that. But other than that, it doesn't really exist. And so at that point, you know. Basically showed up in Olympia, you know, to live there full time and got the web address stuff figured out and the free agency existed. But I had never functionally booked a tour before. I had booked tons of college shows. Sure. I booked lots of bands playing my house in Iowa. Like, it was a fun time. But bas- yeah, that's different. But basically started from square one and figuring out how to book a tour for a band. So mm-hmm. I would spend all day like trolling bands tour dates, like seeing the lists of places that yeah. they played. You know, Google the spot, call them on the phone, ask how to book a show there, and eventually put together like a network of clubs that I could reliably call to get shows set right, up for bands. Right. And what was the first tour? Do you remember? Well, I know I remember my first client was Bar, Brendan Fowler, B A R R. And until recently, I, like, kept him on as a client at Ground Control until relatively recently, just out of respect for him being the first one. But he was the one that was, like, when (coughs) Slam and the label were, like, we're starting this agency thing. I didn't didn't know Brendan at all. I barely knew his music. I knew it from the label being, you know, putting it out. Sure. And he was like, all right, let's do this. You're my agent. Congrats. (laughs) And I was like, all right. I'm an agent. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, but, you know, I booked a lot of small tours for a lot of bands that, in retrospect, like, it was tough times. Like, no matter, you know, if there's an agent booking or not, like, a, a small tour, a, a not good tour is not good no matter what. And an agent just becomes mm, right. uh, an additional reason why it's not good. You're paying, a band is paying someone to send them on a crappy tour. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to think of put it. Yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, for sure. And an agent is becomes, uh, you know, uh, accountable for everything. Yeah. You know? And uh, and I was learning as I was going along, along and kind of making up the rules as I went along. You know, I'd hit someone up and 
and had the promoters who would trust me to bring them shows that would perform all right, but you know, not everyone is going to perform. All, every, not every show is going to break well, the bank. Yeah, especially if you're if it's like challenging, experimental yeah. music, noise bands, and yeah. And stuff like that. But I had no idea, like, I didn't know what, like, getting holds were or, like, right. getting an offer sheet or, like, all of this stuff that is day, you know, day one, square one in right. booking tours. I didn't know because I didn't have anyone teaching me. So, like, the entire agency situation was, uh, in retrospect, really, like, slapdash and crazy, but also felt really, like, empowering because I was like, okay, I need a website taught myself html and like built a website like okay. you know <laughs> like so every right. step of the way it's like a self-taught trade yeah. too i'm like we need i need a database and there's another dude booking bands uh that was out of seattle washington named uh, jeremy hadley and we like he had like an excel sheet that he had built out and that was kind of like a database and a kind of like using Excel mail merge could do contracts mm. or like at least take the info that you plugged in and can make yeah. a con like a, a contract out of it kind of. Sure. And so he like shared that with me. I think I gave him like a few hundred bucks or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Cool. Know, like, <laughs> Cause that database and then learning and then figuring out how to make a contract yeah. is like the first major uh, accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, know? and like the free agency contract, I mean, was the cork agency contract and i took their logo right. off it and put my logo on the top <laughs> I, I wonder really how many other you know how many other contracts exist that basically just have been other agencies <laughs> logos removed in someone yeah. else's I've, I've seen that many times yeah so so that was getting going so the free agency technically started like june 2005 okay and i was in olympia i you know like i said i left olympia october 2006 Mm -hmm. So it existed for a little bit more than a year in Olympia. At that time, I was playing in the punks, and we like went on a tour that I booked. And so you know, I'm like, oh. I'm like on the road. I had a, like a hacked like trio phone that nice. I could plug into the computer to get on the internet. Wow! When I was on the road, and I'd like be under a blanket in the back of the car, <laughs> like sending emails, trying to book shows for bands. And you know, to, you know, there are a lot of people who. Uh, I still know from that era of stuff who right. I, promoters or like bands people right. that I still deal with all the time that uh, you know really gave me a lot of uh, leeway in like how slapdash it was right. <laughs> and I want to apologize to all of them for that <laughs> uh, yeah well yeah that's cool yeah. I mean yeah I can dig that um so at its most, I mean, what was the roster like? Because because uh, I only remember a few, and it's only because I wasn't able to reference anything before. Yeah. The one I remember the most, it, which is probably the most, probably you did the least amount of shows for, is mm. Pig Out. Yeah. Uh, which is from Australia, yeah. right? Yeah. So at the biggest, the agency was was after I moved to New York and kind of was like, I'm going to focus on this full time. I. Uh, I realized that being in Olympia wasn't a place that having an agency like that could thrive. Most of my big bands were from New York. Right. I moved out here um, and actually had like a, a like partner employee for a little bit, this dude Michael O'Neill, who played in this band, uh, Princess, who uh, were from Chicago, uh -huh. who were like kind of like a... Uh, they were big in like the queer scene and 
like kind of electronic-y, kind of rappy. It was like a, it was a like a cool band that I got hooked up with through Brendan Fowler. And so mm-hmm. Michael was living in New York, and was like, I also enjoy booking shows, and I booked for Princess before you booked our tours. Oh, like, okay. do you need any help or anything like that? And basically, he started carrying a roster of bands as well. Oh, cool. So at the biggest, the company was the two of us and uh, probably like 35 bands total. Wow. So Not bad. it was just enough to kind of be a full-time job, but with no income. Like, <laughs> right. You know? Just enough to be stressed out constantly, yeah, constantly and make no money. Yeah. So I had that going on. I was living in the silent bar and putting on shows there. I got a job through um, Alec Bemis to I was working at Cantaloupe Records as like their bookkeeper and doing their royalties. And so the Cantaloupe hmm. Records is the record label of the Bang on the Can folks. Oh, so yeah. it's like modern classical music. Um, so Interesting. Yeah, I don't know yeah, Cantaloupe Records. Either. Yeah, I don't know if it still exists, but like they had a, a office in Fort Greene, like in a building on Hanson Street and. I would go in there like a couple days a week and like tabulate the mail order CD sales and put it in a sheet and then send the bands a letter at the end of the year that was like, all right, we sold 14 copies of your CD. You get 10 cents. <laughs> like, you know, like, cool. Uh, yeah. But I also was able to like, because of my, at that point, experience doing the agency stuff on all of like the mail merge Excel database stuff, I like right. built a similar database for them to do royalties and basically had it set up so I could like type in the number and then press a button and it would like write the form letter that was oh, like wow. we sold this many CDs and I was like oh these two things are working with each other yeah. that's kind of fun yeah but in uh, so beginning of 2007 that's when Silent Barn stuff started to get really rocky right okay. um, Todd was doing more shows at market at that point I think and the cops had kind of figured out what Silent Barn was no, 2008, not 2007. Um, yeah, so the cops had kind of figured out what Silent Barn was. Well, because it got robbed a couple times too, right? It got, robbed, it got robbed. Well, it got robbed once. We got robbed at gunpoint when I was there, and it was like after a show, and like the last band hadn't told us they were leaving, and the door didn't get locked, and like mm. three kids from the neighborhood ran in with like a like a gun, and they took like a wallet and my laptop or Nick's laptop. Basically, it was on the table, right, in front of right. them. And then we got the cops to come, and the cops were like, what is this place? Like, what is going on here? Right, right. <laughs> and, mm. you know, the gun had, like, a laser sight on it, and we're like, yeah, they had, they had this gun with a laser sight, and the cop was like, well, that's obviously fake. And I'm like, I wasn't really thinking about if it was fake. <laughs> right, like, it's right. like, holding it in our face, you know? But uh, <laughs> a few different parties got busted up. Um, I got... Um, I got cuffed up once, and then I had to go to court like four different times for, yeah. for you know, random violation stuff. Um, and it they got put to, you in handcuffs. Yeah, they put me in handcuffs, and I was like sitting in my boxers on the street in the winter oh in God. handcuffs. And then yeah. they let me go and let me go back inside, and I was just like, really. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But um, it became clear that like doing that like doing the agency full time and doing whatever work I could find driving a truck for this movie production working at this record label doing sound at Todd shows right. wasn't going to cut it like right. I was either going to like have to go get a real job or kind of like wash out and go back to my parents house in LA and like right. figure out life um, but right around that time like December 
it was that was like December two thousand seven, is when like Chantel was at the knit and like yes. that job Chantel Hilton yeah, and that job opened up for like a third buyer that was basically booking like local shows and stuff like that right right I remember <laughs> then I was like the cool kid from Bushwick that they wanted me to like come in and bring like the cool Bushwick scene exactly. to the club <laughs> right they're like Peter's doing too many hip hop shows we have to uh, balance this out a little bit yeah so and so I got hired. In December 2007, and then I had already planned to, like, go home to L.A. for, like, a month. Mm. And so they hired me, and I was like, but I actually can't start until late January. And they're like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. But... Yeah, the knitting factory. So, yeah, we worked together in that office. And when... It's funny, because when you started, like, it was like the club was in a very... It was still appeared to be in a very fruitful place. And not, not that long after, it sort of just... Yeah, I mean, like, it, that, all of that fell apart in April of that year. And right. I was, like, last, you know, last man hired, first man fired sort of situation. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But, I mean... I thought you had found uh, um, higher ground first, and then... No, no, that, like, my... So, I was at the club for a few months. I was putting on shows, put on a few shows that I'm proud of to this day. Yes, like, yeah. What are the, the highlights? Like the that Yahawa 13 reunion yes. show, like got all those guys to fly out from California, got No Neck Blues Band on board to right. to play. We did like a two uh like a two floor show where you know it was like Jackie O motherfucker No Neck. Mm-hmm. Like it was a like big happening of like Yes. A older crew of New York weirdos that I desperately wanted to be a part of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a good one. What was the older man? The father, father, not father Yod. Yeah, yeah. So that's that was that show. Yes. So he, so that, so father, father Yod was like the charismatic singer, singer, cult leader. Right. And then he died in the seventies or eighties, and so this band was his band that he used to play with. Mm-hmm. That at that point were just starting to get some degree of like critical reevaluation as like a lost like California psychedelic classic. Yeah. So it was like right before Drag City started reissuing all the records and at that point they had like a weird website set up online where you could go and yeah. buy their CDs yeah. and two different people had made documentaries about them. And so they basically had this like you know, I mean they were a cult, but they had this like collective vibe that ended up being influential for like folks like No Neck, I guess. And so sure. I came up with this idea to get them all together to do a show after they had done a talk together in LA and it, like got in touch with the woman who produced the documentary mm-hmm. and like made it happen basically. Oh yeah. Um, but <clears throat> but basically it felt like to me or in retrospect looking at it like that job at the knitting factory was kind of like Chantel like giving me like hipster welfare or something like that she knew knew i was sitting there and booking my own tours all day long and as long as i still was able to put you know a lot yeah simultaneously yeah yeah. so as long as i was able to put four shows or whatever in the club a week and make sure that like the bar was hitting for my shows it was fine yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's funny yeah it's true uh, so i was sitting there you know at that point like the agency stuff was like really getting rolling and like a I had signed Titus Andronicus to the agency, and I had signed Deertick to the agency after meeting them on when I was on tour with Castanets. Oh, okay, yeah, because that was always curious. Because obviously, Deertick has been like a cornerstone of your the, of your roster mm-hmm. post Ninny Factory, yeah. essentially. But 
I always thought that you met them at the club, but it was it was was it now tell me if I'm right in this assumption. It was you that whom had brought them to the club yeah, to play. Exactly. Right? And it was there that Tim and, and who had yet to even start his label, right? Yeah. They they fell in love with this band, right? Yeah, uh, so I had met Deer Tick on tour. I was on tour tour managing um Castanets and Shapes and Sizes. So two bands that were on Asthmatic Kitty Records of yes. Sufjan's label. And castanets were one of the cornerstones of my roster at that time. So yeah. when it was like, okay, we need to go on the road, uh, we need a, a tour manager to do it. I like drove to or got a bus to New Jersey, went to a rental car place called Rent a Wreck, rented a busted mm-hmm. up minivan, like mm-hmm. loaded in the band to this minivan, and we toured to South by and back, like a three week tour or something like wow. that. And you were the tour manager and too. I was the tour manager. And had booked the shows. And had booked the shows and would sit at the merch table and sell merch and book other bands' shows all night long. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Um, and so that tour ended up being a total, like, New York foundational thing for me because on that tour, Lucas Crane was playing in Castanets, who at that point was playing in. Uh, Woods as well, yeah. and that was my direct introduction to that crew of people. And like the Woods crew and the Woodsist label have become a huge part of my business now. Absolutely, uh, that tour was where I met John McCauley from Deer Tick because we crashed into his house in Providence, and he played us music that became the first record. Oh wow! And so on that tour, I was like, "Hey, if you ever like want to go on the road, I like help bands out with this sort of thing. Like, let me know." And that's where that relationship started. Was Deer Tick a band at that point in time, or was just him by himself? Um, he had folks that he played with, and he had been on tour solo before with like uh-huh. Viking Moses, I think. Okay. But it was very fluid at that time. Like, I remember the first right. time I showed up in town, and he had like a stand-up bass player, like Chris oh, Ryan, wow. playing bass. I right. was like, "What the fuck is this, man?" <laughs> you know, like right. I don't know about stand-up bass. I'm like a noise kid. <laughs> yes, <know>? yes <laughs> and he's a he, he's a, he's younger than you too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he must have been like a young young guy. Yeah, he was a, he was he was a young pup. Like he was always. You I mean he that guy was destined for greatness and destined to write music. Well, yeah. I mean, concept. you guys have since then you've you've done a lot. Um, yeah, but now I'm not working with them anymore. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah. That's, oh. a, that's, a, that's a recent development. Is it? Yeah, which is... Well, uh, that happens. Yeah, it's... That's, that's happened the, to me a lot. That's how the biz goes. Yes, it is, but I mean, you, it's not the, not to discredit the decade plus that yeah, you yeah, gave I, them I, I, of I, your I life. I put in 10 years. So. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, and after a while, I mean, like, you know, you, you've toured, uh, you know, thousands of... Sh- I mean, booked thousands of shows for them, you know. Yeah, uh, close enough, probably. I I think that that band is probably over a thousand that I've booked. Yeah, and they they have like does that that includes um, Diamond Rugs as well. Right? Yeah, so there's like Diamond Rugs stuff, you know, John's uh, project with Saint Pay and Steve Berlin from uh, Los Lobos is in yeah. that band, and uh, and there's like Middle Brother, so that was yeah, that's um, a lot. John McCauley and uh, Taylor from Dawes and Matt Vasquez from Delta Spirit. So that was wow. like, you know, there's three agents in the mix fucking that tour up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well, another part um, that I thought was interesting, and maybe, you know, this kind of all translates into your transition from the Knitting Factory into working at Ground Control, mm-hmm. is, and this might, you know, be a step ahead, but it's okay. Is that there was this moment in time, uh, and this brings Todd P back sort of into into the fold a little bit with your sort of first wave of artists that you were working with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
at ground control, yeah. you know, connecting the, the free agency to ground control, yeah. was how you sort of broke out with was like Woods, Waves, um, like Vivian Girls. Vivian Girls. Yeah. Those three, really. I mean, not, you know, not to discredit real estate and Titus, because those were a part of it too, mm-hmm. but there was like a couple of rounds of shows or weekends where it was like those three, I think, played a bunch of shows together. It was like these like yeah, so, New York college shows too. I remember very vividly. Yeah, so at that point, so we're looking at like March, April 2008-ish. Right. Around that point. So um, I was working at the Knit. In April 2008 was when I found out that I wasn't going to be working at the Knit for much longer. Right. And was kind of in, you know, back in like hustle mode of like, all right. I have the like the agency is like almost there. Like it's almost right. covering. I can almost afford to live here. You know, mind you I was living at Silent Bar and paying six hundred dollars a month and subsidizing that with, you know, the more shows we do, the cheaper the rent would be because we'd sell more beers. Mm-hmm. Like, you know? Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> um and uh and so it became clear that I wasn't going to be working at the Knitting Factory anymore. Who who delivered that news to you? Was it Jared? Or was it like, do you remember? I have a story that I've built up in my head and I've told over and over again. <laughs> right. I'm not sure it's true. Okay. But um, I think from what I remember, like I got a paycheck and it was short. And I went to Ari, the money dude, and yes. was like, I'm short. And he was like, oh, you should talk to Shay. And Shay was like, yeah, we're letting go. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're short, because we decided to stop paying you. That's hilarious, man. Yeah. Um, but at that point, so I was, in, I was in the office hustling all the time. I was working on, like, the first tour that I worked on with for Deer Tick. At oh, that point, oh. Tim Putnam had just been promoted from night manager to whatever he was doing where he was, he was yeah. working in the office. So he was working in the <laughs> old office at the club in the basement. And then he got moved, like, bumped up to the office that we all worked in across the street. Yeah. And uh, whenever I was working on a tour for a band, I would listen to their, the, that record. Right, right, right. So I was, like, listening to the Deer Tick record, which at that time had come out. And it had come out on this little tiny label called Fial Records out of mm. Houston. Oh, That was wow. Jana Hunter's record label. And oh, Jana, interesting. And Jana was one of my clients at the time. So it was, like, this family affair sort of thing. The label pressed 500 CDs or something, and that was that, you know? Right. And so I'm listening to this record over and over in the office, where I'm, like, struggling to book this Deer Tick tour. And Tim Putnam's like, what's up with this? Like, what's up with this band? Like, and I was like, you know, they're great. And so Tim got yeah. super into it, and then, like, a year later, Partisan Records is off the ground. Deer Tick is, like, their premier client. He had, Tim had asked me about, you know, can I can you help hook me up with this band? And I was like, oh, actually, I kind of got burnt by, like, a startup record label, so, like, I'm not sure about this. And right. he, like, went to Providence, met the fam, like, made it happen. Like, Yeah, he's <laughs> such a go-getter. That dude will, he'll go, yeah. he'll go there. But, um, so my job at the Knit was winding down, and Ground Control put out a thing that, uh, they were looking for, like, to hire an assistant, mm-hmm. basically. And, uh, I didn't really know Eric D that well. I had booked like some Raina Maria shows through him at Grinnell because sure. Raina Maria were like the most popular band in colleges in the Midwest at that time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that was amazing. And uh, so he, 
Chantel basically like tipped me off to shows that Eric would be like hanging out at the knitting factory, like just right. book like David Dondero there, like you know, like a Tilly and the Wall show or something like that. And so I just made sure I was like around drinking beers at those shows right. and met him, and then eventually like you know talked with him about working there. And I was like, well, I've got my agency, I have some bands. I'm not necessarily looking to be an assistant, but I'll do it. Sure. You know, like I just I gotta work and we like hammered it out and so I started at ground control May first, two thousand eight. Wow. So it's really like you were able to make that that's good to make that jump without too long of a, you know, dead space in yeah. between where you're like really trying to like you know, when shit gets dire, you know. Mm. Yeah. And so at that point, Michael O'Neill, who was working with me doing free agency stuff, was also less motivated to be booking shows, and he was playing music more full-time again, and he joined... He started that band Men with J.D. Sampson. Right, yes. And so he was in, he was in Men. Interesting, so then I didn't was, realize that. And yeah. so then that was when that band started to take out, like, you know, do their thing. And so he was like, I'm going to be on the road. And so we basically kind of, like, folded up shop on the agency, and we had, like, 35 bands, and I think that maybe 15 made the transition with me to right. ground control and and at that point st- it was still very fly by like i still had very little experience with like the nuts and bolts of like booking a tour in the modern sense where it's like you hold every venue for like 4 days and then figure out how it all fits together right. it was all very fly by the seat of the pants so like i was st- you know at ground control very quickly you know it became clear that some of those bands weren't going to make sense for that company and, you know, had a lot of breakups with a few people, yeah, yeah. which kind of happens. But the first band that I ended up signing was Vivian Girls. And so Vivian Girls were, like, blowing up the Todd P scene at the moment. And they were from the next town over in New Jersey as the Titus Andronicus dudes. And yeah, so what, they, which town is that? So they were from Ridgewood, New Jersey, and Titus were from... Uh, can't believe I'm blanking on this. I'm blaming on the concussion. <laughs> <laughs> That's valid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hold on. Okay. Yeah, so Vivian Girls were like kind of like the new like queens of like the Todd P scene. They were playing shows all the time and like selling out shows and stuff was going super well for yeah. them. And like they had put out the first record on a label called Mauled by Tigers, I think. And then like that record became a like it sold out everywhere and was like selling for hundreds of dollars on eBay and it was like a thing. So the, yeah. they were a band that I was like, all right, I want to start working with them and like ask them about working together. And I, and uh, they were like, now nah, we're good. We're just going to self book. And then like hmm. a week later or something like that, they got asked to do dates in Canada opening for TV on the radio okay. and got like the contract pack for that. And you know, had to do real immigration and all that stuff. Right. And they called me back and they're like, all right, you can, you can be our booking agent. <laughs> Here, take care of all this immigration all this bullshit. <laughs> all right, that's so funny. But so, yeah, for, off rip of ground control, like, I started working with uh, Vivian Girls super quickly. Like, Fucked Up had uh, reached out because their relationship with Christian at Cork Agency was ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really quickly got involved with uh, the Waves folks because flashing back to Woods and Woods' records, Woods has put out the first wave out. That's right. That's right. And so I had a hard and fast policy of not working with a band until I had seen them before. Uh And Waves was the first band that I broke that policy for because 
Jeremy from Woods had played with them in like San Diego, and he was like, "This rips. I'm gonna put out the record. You should put out. You you should book the tour." And I yeah. was like, "All right, cool, game on." Right, and that yeah, I mean, and that was like a big obviously that first album too. That yeah. your campaign with them was a very big impressionable one because it was the one that introduced them as far as a live touring thing. Like yeah, really, it was, right. but it was also like you know. That I was still like I was still a young agent and I was still figuring right. stuff out and so like um, there was a lot that you know like it, if it wasn't for like Eric and like the support that I had at Ground Control like it could have gone a lot differently than it did because sure. as shows got bigger and I started to deal with like the idea of like pitching a band for a festival or something like that but through that through those connections through being around when like Mike Sniper started Capture Tracks and w- Jeremy was getting going with Woodsist and Waves and all of that stuff, I became kind of like the go-to dude for a particular scene of bands, right. which was cool because at that point I was just making my name as an agent and starting to get myself out there as like not just the dude who books like weird noise tours, but like can book actual tours for bands. Yeah, and I mean and that's an invaluable place to be for an agent too to be to be aligned with a label and and them trust you there's like a trust level and a loyalty that goes like you know you're sort of first uh in line you're the first call basically when someone's like all right i'm signing this band what do you think and so though especially with uh mike sniper and captured tracks like those were like really like fruitful years and that like he's like hey i found this dude on myspace named wild nothing right what do you think and we're like literally we're like I aming each other. He's like, I think I'm going to ask him if he wants to put out a record, and I'm like, maybe I'll ask him if he wants to go on a tour. And like, yeah, that helps. Yeah. And so, all of these folks, I got mixed up in working with all these folks, and you know, knock on wood, I still work for most of them to this day. Right. Where it's you know, because of these connections with, you know, the labels and the folks that were around. Definitely. Stuff Did, first. With Blank Dogs, the capture tracks had was he already existed, right? Yeah, so Blank Dogs uh, existed as a band, and I knew Mike from Blank Dogs stuff, and I was Blank Dog's agent, but Blank Dogs didn't really play that many shows. Yeah, he did. Like, I know. He, I like you guys had a whole thing where it was like it was still very much shrouded in mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the cloak. You know, there was, a, there was a rumor that I was Blank Dogs. No way. And right. that was like yeah. the, well, the, one of the first reasons why I like talked to him. Like he was working on like at Academy Records. Right. And, but so he had got captured tracks off the ground, you know, or, you know, 2009 or 2010-ish, you know, early, I don't know exact sure. the exact time frame. But that was when he kind of was like, "All right, I'm not into playing live anyways. Right. I'm just going to focus on record label stuff and so he went on a tear where he was signing a bunch of bands and putting a bunch of music out and I became the agent for like half of that stuff right and uh, you know that's how I got mixed up with like Dive and you know all the, yeah. you know, all these different folks that he was involved with mm-hmm. can you clear something up about Wild Nothings for me though sure. I know I've asked you this in the past too because they because I, and I hope I'm not confusing confusing it with another band, but this is the dude that says he's from Blacksburg, Virginia, right? Yeah. But was it that now? You know, I grew up in Blacksburg, Virginia, okay. so and I don't know. I don't know, dude. <laughs> so, but I'm old, I'm much older than him. But yeah. but of course, since nothing comes out of that town, it, uh, and I don't mean that in any kind of mean spirited way. Yeah. No, like you know, established rock band has ever really like mm. sprung out of that town. Did he grow up there or did he just go to Virginia Tech? That's what I've always been curious about. Do you know his backstory to that 
uh, extent. I am reasonably sure he grew up there. Okay. Uh, That's what's up. That's great. I don't... I'm not positive about that, but I've never thought of that as being a place where he... uh, just went to college. Right. Like I, we, see, like I was we, always confused like about we that. We still treat Virginia shows. Like when we play, when that band plays in Virginia, we still like go a little bit bigger on the venue than it seems like right. it makes sense because it's like a hometown thing. Right. But you guys never did no shows in Blacksburg, though. Mm-mm, that was, uh, he moved to New York pretty soon after all that right. stuff was rolling. Yeah, but then, you can only accomplish so, so much in that town. And so before that, he played in a band. See, I had like another weird connection with him because he was like a big fan of Abe Vigoda, who I was yes. booking tours for. And he played in a band that was called uh, Fa- Face Paint. I don't know. Face Paint. Face Paint, I think. Face Paint rings a bell. But uh, that they they sounded like Abe Vigoda. They had like that kind of like tropical punk yeah tropical r- punk vibe. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you had a good run with Abe Vigoda too right yeah I'm still like friends with all those dudes are they still actively playing they're, now they're, they're done as a band uh, yeah. Juan who was the guitarist of that band uh, has a new band called Roses that oh cool Jamie Granado just put out his record on no way. Uh, the Roses record on his record label yes that's yeah. amazing yeah. that's the homie that's your homie yeah, too. yeah yeah so like I mean and even being around in New York and like living you know uh, being roommates with Jamie when yeah. he and Sam got the group Tightener label off the ground like their that's first Sam uh, Smith, Smith. Yeah, yeah. Sam Hockney Smith who of you know Fader complex fame right yeah yeah he was like a editor of the Fader for a while he's now writing for he's just started a, or will start a job at Vulture dope like as an editor there writes for Pitchfork does lots of yeah. freelance writing but uh, so he and Jamie started a label called Group Tightener Records and their first release was a best coast seven inch and then oh, interesting and so like we because of my connection with waves and their connection with best coast you know the, the, there's another little scene around that so they put out a cloud nothings record yes different from wild nothing yes but i was the uh became the agent for cloud nothings too and so you know it was a pretty fun environment to be in because i'm like booking you know going to work at ground control every day working on booking these bands tours getting home at night and then like sitting in our living room in Greenpoint like hand stamping records and numbering them oh, for, cool. like, for the release because he's like alright all hands on deck I gotta get these 507 inches out tomorrow like, yeah hell yeah let's stamp them up yeah. <laughs> that is, that is, that's exciting to yeah. be there on the ground floor for that and to like have started uh, working with groups really like during their mm-hmm. uh, earliest moments and years and stuff yeah yeah um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about them. There's so many other groups. I mean, Ponytail, too, you did them. Right? Yeah, I did like, Ponytail. And Ponytail were actually one that uh, Michael O'Neill, the other free agent, he brought in Ponytail, oh, not nice. me. And so then when I went to Ground Control, uh, Ponytail came with me to Ground Control. And so, like, I didn't sign them off the bet, but I was, like, their, I became their agent after he, after the switch to Ground Control happened right. and he wasn't agenting anymore they're, are they, they're not active anymore either right? they aren't active anymore um, kind of lost track of all those all those dudes I think Dustin the guitar oh, yeah. player is living in Japan for yeah, a Dustin bit. Wong yeah, yes yeah. I think so and he's put out a couple records on Thrill Jockey and um, Molly uh, Siegel the singer uh, he is, is Willie Siegel now and lives in, in Arizona Oh, um, I don't know what happened to Ken Sino, the other guitar player, and then um, 
Jeremy the drummer is like part of like the extended Boredom's crew. Oh, so cool. like when Boredom's does like the like seventy seven drummers, he's yeah. like one of the core four. Oh, whatever, like him and Chippendale and Hisham. Yeah, and, you know. Did you do High on Fire too? I did not do High on Fire. But what was the metal? You did like a kind of hard stoner yeah, metal band. Yeah, so I did Neurosis and Neuro- Sleep. Yes, yeah, Sleep so did, is did, what I was thinking. Yeah, so I did the Sleep reunion tour, which has Matt from High on Fire, and I don't work with right. Sleep anymore, but I still work with Al Cisneros on Ohm, like his other band. Yes, Ohm, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, cool. So there was a lot of connective tissue. Oh, yeah. I feel like that it's a bummer that this is a podcast because we can like put a wall map up. Right. And, like, draw how all of my bands are connected either superficially through my business stuff but in real life like you know Kyle from Crystal Stilts plays in Woods now and this dude from Woods does this you know like Jarvis produces everyone's records and like you know your history yeah I know I know and it's interesting (laughs) because yeah I mean the longer you stay in the business and that's just a testament to to like how uh, you know people when people stick together long enough and that sense of loyalty like They'll, as as those musicians' careers will splinter off and like mm. evolve in different ways. Like I think Emo and Ohm is a great example of that mm. too, because he's you booked a few different variations of his thing, and obviously the really quickly though, how did that? How did the sleep neurosis thing come about? Was that knowing that that was just for a sh- short period of time that mm. you were doing that? But did you reach? Did you pursue them, or was it more like a natural uh, progression towards that? Or? So my connection with that whole crew is actually through Emil, who I don't know right. direct. Like I, at that point, I didn't know directly super well. So, oh, Tim, interesting. So Tim Putnam made the introduction between me and Emil. That's because, a partisan records yeah. dear tick yeah. connection there, right? So Tim introduced me to Emil because Tim was going to put a, was putting out Holy Sons records on Partisan, and he'd always just been like a huge fan of Emil, um, his songwriting, and Emil's a wild dude with. Uh, Stories for days, years. right? So, like, and Tim's always been a huge champion of his music, yeah, too. Like since from from day one, right? And so he introduced me to Emil, who had just joined Ohm, taking over drums for Chris, who was in that band previously, uh, who retired from music completely. Oh wow! And so, um, so through the my connection with Emil, I like ended up meeting those guys, and then Al. Um, Cisneros hired me as Ohm's booking agent. So Al was also the something, you know, like the songwriter, one of the core dudes of Sleep. And so anytime you book an Ohm show, people ask about a Sleep show. And yeah. at that point, they hadn't reunited. There was nothing going on. Right. And so uh, Chris, who had quit Ohm, was also the drummer of Sleep. And so he was like out of the game completely. Al's focused on Ohm. Ohm signed to Drag City for their releases, and Ohm has been amazing to work for this entire time. Uh, it got to the point, I think it was probably All Tomorrow's Parties got sleep to play a show as a one-off, right. and Al kind of was like, all right, this is going to work. He found a drummer, um, Jason Roder, who plays in Neurosis, to take over on drums, and finally, with Jason in place, was like, I got the drummer that this band needs. Like, this band has a very particular vibe, feel, sound. Jason's the drummer for it. And uh, <clears throat> so Sleep reunited, and he was like, do you want to book some shows? And so I did. Amazing. And I think that was 2009. Yeah. And so it was, at that point, the biggest shows I'd ever booked. You know, they, like, sold out Terminal 5. We did, like, a Will Turn in L.A. We yeah, did, hell like, yeah. We did 
a bunch of really big shows and festivals and you know at, and so it was a very quick jump for me from being the dude who booked experimental bands and noise bands and would try to get a grand for a show right. to negotiating a you know big five figure deal at a place like Terminal 5 right and you know and confidently doing it you know yeah. just being like this is what we need or you know sure and well when you have those tools you can you can do that it's you know it's quite amazing how you know, with an agent, just depending on what you're working with, you can yeah. do a whole lot, you know. You work with what you got, you know. And so then I, so through the sleep stuff and through the connection with Jason Roeder, then I got involved with neurosis stuff. And honestly, to tell the truth about it after, you know, with years looking back on it, like, that relationship didn't go very well. And I was fired from both neurosis and sleep oh. for kind of dropping the ball on neurosis stuff. And... Um, I was just sort of like out of my element a little bit. Like I was, right. was too far away from where I had started, where I didn't understand certain things about the, you know, that Neurosis is a legendary band with like 25, 30 years of strong history. Right. And I just didn't really make myself open to like understanding that as much as I should have. Like that, the, that band has like people that they like to play with and things that the way this, that they do things. And I was ultimately like, a cog screwing up that machine, you know. The, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, when, especially yeah, if you're having to shift to completely different yeah markets and promoters but, and rooms. But and then stuff. also, like personally, I mean, I was like drinking a lot more at that point. Like I had signed so many bands that were doing so well at Ground Control that that was just like not like you know I probably was like out at a show or like partying with one of my bands like every single night for a year or something. Sure. Like that, you know, like. It, the, my uh, kind of like niche that I found as an agent got bigger than I was or bigger than I could control and like, right, right. so you know there was like a real period of growing pains where I like lost a bunch of bands very quickly and you know I'd signed a bunch of bands very quickly and then lost a, you know a bunch sure. so um, well it's like nurturing those relationships is, is time consuming taxing mm -hmm. you're only what I've learned too uh, is sometimes you're only as good as your last offer too, yeah. or whatever you know you might say. And, but uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't doing my best work for the bands, and then so ultimately, you know, it's one thing when you're the only agent asking to book the tours, <laughs> but like when a band, you know is doing actual business and actual numbers and like they're putting their trust in you to handle it and they can put that trust into some into someone else to handle it you know you you reach the end of the line with folks right and uh so you know i like had to take a step back after you know that 2010 2011 period and kind of refocus on you know doing my best work for the bands that hire me because ultimately Right. I'm an employee of these bands, and just as much as I'm an employee of the company that I work for, like the company might write the paycheck, but the band is the one going on the road, playing the shows, and doing the work of, you know, actually bringing this money in. And if I can't do my best work for them, then they can find someone else who can, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's wise uh, in your years now. You know, <laughs> yeah, you're now a seasoned that, now that agent. Been, now that I've been doing it for 12 years, it's easy to say. But at the time, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you're getting dumped by a girlfriend or going through a massive breakup. You spend all, oh, your, I know it. You spend all day thinking about waves contracts. And then, you know, the next know day it. they're like, never mind. And you're like, ah. Uh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got I got dropped by a band one time. And it, uh, irregardless of who they are and uh, the management, 
was like, this is hard. He told me, uh, this is harder than when I broke up with my girlfriend. That's how that was. That was his way of uh, telling me. And you're like, eat shit. Like, yeah, yeah, tell like, me about it. Yeah. Okay, so, so how am I going to pay rent again? Yeah, it sounds like you still have a job. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, they still work together, and that was years ago. So yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, so, uh, and I know that now. I mean, well, you came to New York in 2006, yeah. right? So. Uh, it's basically, you know, you're past your a decade here in New mm-hmm. York, too. Um, yeah, I'm a New Yorker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, um, where do you see, like, where you're at now? Having been worked as an agent for this long, too, now you're like a, like a senior agent mm-hmm. type character because the, obviously the industry has changed a lot. Well, the industry has changed in crazy ways, in ways that I wouldn't have even really, like, imagined uh, when I started working at Ground Control eight years ago. So, like, at that point, Ground Control was, you know, one of the biggest boutique agencies there was in a world full of boutique agencies. Yeah. And now, in 2017, there are, like, three major boutique agencies, and they're the same ones that were around or some of the same ones that were around back then, but there's not as much mm-hmm. the like culture of like one person with a web address, you know, with an email address and 20 bands right. like there was back when I started. Yeah. And so, you know, the industry is like consolidated in this kind of crazy way. And I'm really lucky that I fell in with Eric at ground control um, because I share his vision of like running a like successful boutique agency yeah i don't really have the like drive to like go work at a caa or william morris or anything like that because there's like the impersonal nature of or how at least how my um feeling on it looking on it from the outside like the impersonal nature of like getting handed a band or like booking a tour for something that you don't love or like handling your territory and for whoever comes through like that doesn't really do it for me. It's like right. the long-term relationships that I have with my bands and my and with you know the bands that put their trust in me, which is the same way thing that you know the same thing that Eric has with his long-term clients. You know he's worked with Sonic Youth for years and years. He's worked with Connor Oberst for years and years. He's worked for Jenny for Jenny Lewis forever, and it has this sort of like familial aspect that I really appreciate. Right. And like as the agency has grown and I've gone from being the new hire to a senior agent to now the vice president of the company. Hell yeah. Uh, it's it's exciting to be involved with like the back end of like actually organizing how the company itself is laid out and thinking about things not in terms not just in terms of my bands and like the success of my bands on the road but like the success of the company and how all of yeah. our bands do. And so we've grown, you know, I was, when I started at Ground Control in May 2008, I was the fourth employee, fifth employee of the company. And now we've got... Now, does that, that's all agents, that's, that's also including like a office manager and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, that, right. that was... A small organization. Like, five, like, yeah, I was number five... At the, who was at that company at the time told like I was the fifth employee they had hired and other and fired other people or other sure. people had come and gone but like at that point it was Eric and Andrew Colvin and Sam Rui in the New York office and Jim Romeo uh, actually and, and Kate in North Carolina so I was number six yeah and uh, but now we've got 
10 people here in New York. We've got uh, Timmy in Austin. Jim is still in North Carolina. We've got a couple people in L.A. You know, it's yeah. the company's grown a bit and in a very, like, organic and exciting way where we can sit back right. and, like, look at all of our agents with their different rosters of bands that they carry and different styles that each everyone focuses in yeah. and can, like, put together a huge event like GCT 15, which was our 15-year anniversary festival that we did. That was at, at Webster Hall, That right? was at Webster Hall at the end of 2015 that we, like, <clears throat> all of the all of the bands had bands from their... All of the agents had bands from their rosters play this, cool. like three show fest or three stage festival mini thing in Webster Hall. Yes, I was there. I saw Steve Gunn play. Yeah, so it's like you get like Steve Gunn on stage with Kurt Vile and, right. and, and Kim Lee. Gordon and Lee covering Velvet Underground or yeah, like yes. Lee joining Parquet Courts on stage oh, to right. do Sonic Youth covers, you know, like stuff like that where yeah, that's cool. these bands start to collaborate and it starts to feel bigger than a company or an agency and it starts to feel more like we're a family like that's the yeah. stuff that's like exciting to me yeah no I mean and, and, yeah definitely and the boutique agencies like that's what we have that's our strong point is that it is a family vibe and like I feel blessed in that ground control can be like a strong enough and big enough company that we can like get our bands on these major festivals and do you know do big touring right. deals with the live nations and AEGs of the world but yeah, do you don't feel as though that that that's not a, a hindrance at all? I mean, no. it's basically you you know developed those relationships for years too. Um, although maybe you know as these mergers continue yeah. in the in the booking agency you know landscape, mm-hmm. um, those do you do you think does it appear as though those festival offers are harder to get to because they're so um, are they eaten up? by larger corporations or, or I don't know if I necessarily feel like you know the festival offers are especially are a good festival like a festival that has you know like a Coachella like that has a buyer like Paul Tillet who's super hands on right like who is going to do what he wants to do regardless of in- industry trends or figure out a way for it to work regardless of industry trends yeah if he wants I mean, something that he likes that it doesn't really matter who the agent is yeah think. he's gonna you know he's gonna make you know he put fucked up on Coachella in 2009 when I had just started working for them and you know fucked up isn't going to sell a single ticket for that festival right. but he wanted that band on the festival he thought that the, what they were doing like kind of blending the punk hardcore world into the more mainstream indie rock world and mm-hmm. like you know doing stuff like writing concept records or rock operas and all this stuff was right. interesting he was like mm-hmm. I want them on the fest you know mm-hmm. in the same way that he's always been the one of the main proponents of like getting you know not necessarily the most famous bands to reunite and play shows whether it's like my bloody valentine or ride or you know like these uk bands that he grew up really championing whether it's like fire hose yeah exactly you know like stuff where you know like who knows if what whatever is going to happen but like if there if like a fugazi reunion happens i feel like that paul will be involved with it in some way you know he, yeah. put, he put like ian mckay and the, he put the evens on coachella yes, i remember that i watched him play with like 20 of my best friends right. and that was it you know that was so <laughs> dope when he, when he did that was a few years ago yeah, that was now. a few yeah. years ago yeah that was cool the evens yeah 
Um, you, are you going to South by Southwest this year? No, I'm on that every other year schedule. Right, so nice. Last year, I had a bunch of younger bands that I had started working for who really went to South by and like hustled it super hard. And this year, I don't, and so it like kind of naturally works out. Like, yeah, yeah. My first time ever going was with you. Oh, when we, um, when we got the Knitting Factory to send us. Yes, they <laughs> flew us down and put us up. It was me, you, and Chantel. Um, and I went uh, after that. It was a succession of years in a row. It was mm-hmm. like six or, or seven years in a row and uh, it's been a couple of years for me because sometimes it felt like in pre- years previous there were, it was more and more of a traumatic experience being there and shit but I think it's all relative to one the bands that you're this is coming from a booking agent standpoint yeah. too Not so it's obviously very different for uh, performers mm. or fans if there are fans that go I think you know but um, yeah I always I always hold that first trip in high regard because it was like we went as you know promoters i guess yeah you were like you know representing the knitting factory down there we put together a showcase and you know got like like dan deacon play or yeah i think so yeah i mean i remember the room that it was at it was like that weird emos four room that was like right on the like they took over the restaurant in between (laughs) the two sides of emos yes uh the corner yeah it was like right on it was like right on right where they sell the you sell those Sausages yeah, right in the corner. Yeah, the, the, the best worst. <laughs> yes, man. Those first few years, I, that would be like I would have those for breakfast yeah. and shit, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, South by it's a completely different music industry and landscape than it was even back then. You know, than it was back then. Right. I feel like that there was the attitude and vibe, and it was true that you know a band could go to South by and put on like four like fucking six shows and come out of there with like an agent and a publicist and the label yeah and you went down there to sort of like make it happen right and that was like the tail end of that and like now all the big shows are either you know branded and have you know whatever b-list rapper they can afford to headline right or you know lady gaga whoever whatever mainstream star wants to go and make a cool splash yeah or they're yeah. like label shows or stuff where it's like the bands aren't you're not going down there to like find your agent you already have them in place like yeah, it's know, more to be like this is our brand this is our agency that we represent yeah. and here are all our new groups that you know the agent is showing off their their new signees and so yeah so when i started at ground control we always wanted to go as big as possible with the south by stuff we all every year we did auditorium shorts which is like the biggest yeah. south by stage and we would get one of the biggest bands on the roster whether it was uh, bright eyes or she and him or you know someone to headline the show and then put on a few of our younger bands on the big festival stage to kind of introduce them to people yeah and uh, auditorium shores is one of the few south by shows where people from austin really do show up like the casual show goer because you don't need a badge or anything to go it's like on the waterfront it's free you know, it's like 4,000 cap or whatever, and you don't have to deal with, like, the hustle and bustle of, like, I got a badge and a wristband and, like, skip the line for this, and I'm on the guest yeah, list for that. You, know, you just bullshit. cruise and go. But we had, like, a couple-year run where, like, one year it was, like, rained out completely. Like, it was just that we had two, like, shitty years in a row, and then we're right. kind of like, all right, this is too... We can't ask our bands to do this. Right. For, you know. And South by... I mean, I feel like Austin can be a total risk, too, at that time of year when, it, like, it can... The weather can change, like... Overnight, like. I mean, Austin's had a tough run with weather in the past few years, whether yeah. it's South by stuff or like, you know, uh, oh, yeah, like with, fun, 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 and right. then Sound on Sound Fest getting rained out or yeah. you know, screwed with last Graham. year. Yeah. And then our, like ACL like got rained out, like flooded la- one day last year. Like, 
It's a Dang, mess. Austin yeah. Psychfest, like, cashed. Oh, like, yeah. You know? Dude, that's so true. That's so crazy, like, too, yeah. That's like global warming, like, changing the rainy season and just screwing up yeah. festival times. Yeah, in a town that otherwise was all like, perpetually warm and nice <laughs> yeah. you know, like, and dry. Uh, well, you definitely had, like, amazing runs at Miss B's, like, the Todd P era of stuff that you were doing, yeah. the free agency era, even, like, the early ground control era, you know, those were, like, mm-hmm. some seminal, like, guitar-driven band, South by Southwest Yeah, I mean, there was days, just, like, you know? like watching those old videos of South by, I was watching, not that long ago, there was, like, you know, one of the days at Miss B's that I was involved with where it was, like, No Age and Waves, and No Age are, like, old L.A. buddies and not a band I ever worked with professionally. Right. We always just got along. Mm-hmm. It's, like, No Age, Waves, Woods, Real Estate... Vivian girls and you know there's like me like sitting on top of Woods van like with a tall can of beer because like <laughs> yeah. you didn't have to go into into the bar and buy a beer you could just like drink yeah. them outside and now that yeah. whole zone of Austin is like that's South Sixth Street or um, yeah, that was East like East Six so East Six like, yeah on the right. other side of the highway oh my I mean, god it's totally different like Miss B when Todd started doing shows at Miss B's it was like a low key like closeted Mexican gay bar sort of thing right. where they were like alright we got a patio put on some show like yeah. you can do your thing what was Cheer Up Charlie's that was right next to it too so right? no so Cheer Up Charlie's bought Miss B's and turned it into the first Cheer Up Charlie's oh, and I then see. it went on for one year at Cheer Up Charlie's and they were like had taken the empty lot that was next to Miss B's and like fenced it off and made it a VIP section and we were like what's going Let's on fuck that like, <laughs> that's whack like, that's like literally like an empty lot full of syringes like this is not <laughs> a, <laughs> right this is nobody's VIP section but uh yeah, yeah. I mean yeah just but that was you know like that was the year where like Todd booked like Lil B to like play on top of his like like Todd's like Corolla was like a stage right like, caved yeah. like the roof in like yeah you know yeah. all sorts of wild stuff was happening and then like and then parallel to that was like Timmy Hefner who now is at Ground Control yes like, doing like those legendary like bridge shows yes. where there's like the pedestrian bridge that goes over the river of and course so basically police couldn't get there because mm, right, it's right. not wide enough for a car. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. This is his Chaos and Teos era, too, yeah, yeah. as well, right? So yeah. he would put on the Chaos and Teos Festival and then would have these bridge shows where there was, like, there was one year where, yeah, it was, like, Fucked Up and Vivian Girls, and it was, like, right before I started working with Fucked Up, and they were, like, and I, but I was working with Vivian Girls, and they were super excited to play with each other, and, you know, it was, like, 1 a.m., everyone just wanders out onto this bridge over the river yeah. and plays a show and then, like, runs away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man, the story... I mean, we could talk about these stories for a million years, too. Um, And uh, I love it. I mean, you've always been one of my favorite agents to watch, too, because you've been... uh, You've just evolved in a cool way and have always figured out a way to keep keep it going, too. Like, you know... Well, yeah, you got to do stuff to keep it interesting. Like, at this point, like, you know, I've been booking now for 10 years. I love my bands. Like, it's still, like, the... Every time I feel like I've ever made a decision to like chase a buck or whatever, mm-hmm. it hasn't worked out, and right. so I just stopped doing that. So it's kind of fun in that I've got a roster full of bands that I really love that I respect, and I'm like still excited to go see them play all the time. Yeah. And and a few of them have gotten big enough that like we can come up with crazy ideas and then make it happen. Yeah, that's is, amazing. Which is very gratifying to like be yeah. sitting at a show like sipping a beer, like watching three thousand people have a blast, and you're like, yeah. 
I came up with this idea like stone to the bone on my couch. Like, you know, like, yeah. and, and I, now here's everyone like having a blast. Like, we yeah. did it. Yeah. And, you know, there's been some misses along the way, but at the same time, like, you can't really get concerned with that sort of no. stuff. Are you still, do you like actively look at bands? Like, do you try to, I mean, at this point in time, I'm sure you're you're busy enough with what you have. Like, would you? Do yeah, you, I mean, I always I'm, I constantly like the. I know that's kind of a rhetorical question. No, but, but like the, I constantly am listening to new music, and I guess the main thing is just figuring out. You know, it has to be like the perfect storm of a band right. for me to really want to take it on. But like, I feel like that I'm strong enough with my trust in my gut and like in in the process that. If the right band does come along, if I saw the right band play tonight, yeah. then I would be all about it. So, like, the last band that I signed was Whitney, and that was, like, a year and a half ago. And this has been, like, the craziest year and a half ever. We went from, like, them playing to 10 people at home in Chicago to, you know, they're playing some really big, really big shows. Dope. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah, what's so up. The, so they're about to come back to New York and play Brooklyn Steel and sell 1,800 tickets. No way. So, yeah? yeah? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I like that. And then we've got some other stuff that will that's coming soon that's bigger right. and better than that, you know? Like and Dope. it's and uh you know, to be able to take a step back and say like, okay, not only do I love this band's music, not only, not only do I like talking with them as people, not only have they surrounded themselves with a good team of people who I trust to deal with, but like I think I have like a vision for this and somewhere where we can go that's bigger than you know, playing going on the same tour that we've all booked a million times yeah over know? and over yeah and uh so when the right thing does come along i still go after it but then i also trust myself to say like you know what it's okay for me to be a fan of this band and i'm just yes. and i'll go to their shows and i'll have a blast and i'll enjoy their records and probably listen to their record more than a band that i book because i spend all day thinking about the band that i booked yeah <laughs> internalizing it you know taking on like all that uh you know, um, anticipation to turn it into something like mm-hmm. and build it into something. I mean, man, yeah, dude, you tell me about it. Yeah, like but I've been there. Getting getting to the point like a few years ago where I got comfortable enough with myself to say like, I'm gonna stay a fan and not right. like figuring out how to force it was right. a huge thing for me mm-hmm. because um, you know I'm lucky in that the that my bands are doing well and I'm like successful enough that I can. Yeah. Say that, like, I'm not gonna force it. Yeah, but like, yeah. then there's also stuff that comes up. Like, I work with this dude, C.W. Stone King, who's from Australia, who's mm. kind of a like more like vintage sounding old like blues, almost Zydeco guitar player. Oh wow! Which cool. is probably more in line with music that I listen to at home. And mm-hmm. like, his music came across my desk, and I was like, you know what? This is different for me. It's going to be dealing with a different set of promoters and a different, right. you know, basically a parallel industry, you know, with that's more focused on, like, the Nashville side of stuff. And, right, right. And I think this is going to be interesting, and I'm going to do it because I think that it's fun to stretch in that way. Sure. And it, has, and it you know, it hasn't been the easiest thing, but it's been really rewarding. Like, when I do get those bookings for them where I'm yeah. like, all right, like, it's happening. You like, get those small victories start to lead to Yeah, you know, you, it's like, he's on Newport Folk Festival. Oh, well, we there did, you go. We did it. You yeah, know? that's huge. And yeah. it's not paying It's not paying anybody's rent, but, you know, we're, yeah, we're building there. something. Right, right. Um, would you want to talk about your trip at all? This What just happened? Sure, yeah. I mean, and maybe this would be an interesting and somewhat 
relevant way to close yeah. our conversation too because mm-hmm. um you know uh you just got home like <laughs> a couple of days ago yeah you know and uh you know we had been you and i had been talking about trying to get together and do this for a while too and and um you know uh, serendipitously this sort of is we're talking now but i mean yeah. so but you were just in jamaica yeah, so I was just in Jamaica for what was going to be my first vacation in years. Like mm-hmm. that was, <laughs> you know, for, I don't doubt that for, at all. Yeah, you know, our first vacation that's not wasn't like planned around a music festival right. or anything like that. Didn't that, have you know? a band of yeah. yours playing. Also. Yeah, I like put on an out of office message. I was like, I'm actually out of office. Like, you know? right. Yeah, and, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so uh, went down to Jamaica. It was a week ago Thursday, so I think it was. March 2nd and upon arrival on the way to the hotel got in a very bad car accident mm, yeah. and uh, spent the rest of my time there um, in different hospitals helping out uh, with uh, my girlfriend who was pretty seriously injured Yeah, and then got home last Sunday and so I've been home for exactly a week now and just sort of dealing with the aftermath of that like you know going from what was going to be a mellow vacation time out of the office, you know, trip, you know, rest to recharge. Basically, sure. Yes. To like dealing with hospitals and insurance settlements and, you know, making like sure in another bands, country. Too, yeah. You know. And making sure my bands are covered and making sure that I'm not too banged up to work because, right. you know, so like I got a, I had a concussion and I got a, a fractured rib and sprained my ankle. And all of that stuff is ultimately pretty superficial. Like, I'm fine. Yeah. And that's lucky. Because that's it was amazing. Bad, it was a bad accident. Yeah. And, and, your, and, and, and your girlfriend is doing yeah. okay? She's back doing home. Better. She's back home and uh, is going to recover. And, and it seems like that both of us are going to make full and complete recoveries from a, a head-on accident at 50 miles an hour where we could just as easily have been dead, you know? Yeah. Man. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you believe in karma or, or any of that, but I mean, yeah, definitely are very fortunate, if not yeah, lucky. No, I, mean, I definitely believe in it to the, 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 the point where, and I hope that you see this through not just this conversation, but, you know, 10 years of dealing with each other that yeah. try to put a good vibe out into the world and not worry about um, stuff that you can't, work, you know. They yes. have no control over. Chillers only, man. Chillers only, you know? And uh, and I feel lucky that <clears throat> I can come out of it and saying, like, all right, the worst that's happened is like, I have a bump on the head and I'm kind of, like, foggier than I would be. It basically feels like I'm hungover all the time. Yeah. And hopefully that goes away soon. But Yeah. I think, well, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, obviously, we, you know, having talked uh as long and talked about as much stuff as we have like uh, which i'm very grateful for and but that it's like that you're able to just you know that that you kind of came out of this whole thing unscathed to the point where you can look back and actually be like wow like and talk about it and it's only a few days ago like a like a week ago yeah you know, it's, it's yeah. unbelievably great and no i'm just lucky that we're that we came out of it as uh as unharmed as we were and you know hopefully yeah. you know she makes a full quick recovery and it seems like stuff's going that way and uh but you know like i touched on before like all i do all day is think about sending bands on the road and having them drive around the country and you know 
not the safest conditions sometimes you know sometimes sometimes you're touring the rockies in january and like (laughs) you need a you need a day off to get over you know the snowy mountain pass yeah or like there's like a hurricane like you know in (laughs) alabama or something like that or tornado and shit like that stuff is when you're a booking agent and a touring artist you're booking all year round no matter what the season is so yeah and you and you it's a lot and we also book very far in advance you know Yes, it, I'm like sweating it out in July, booking someone's like February tour. No <laughs> not, doubt, not thinking about that. Like we don't know what's going to be like yeah, that. That the road between Toronto and Ottawa is going to be negative twenty in February because right. right now I'm like in shorts or whatever. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, I know it's such a bizarre line of work. But all that know. stuff can just come at you so fast yeah. out of nowhere that I think it's important to just be able to like take a step back and say like, yeah. That sucked. It was awful. But we're all here. We're all healthy. Let's keep it moving, you know? Absolutely, man. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate yeah, it. for sure. No, yeah, thanks for having me over. And, and uh, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun hell to yeah. talk about all this stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I've been wanting some, to do this for a while. Talk about some stuff I haven't thought about in a minute, you know? Yeah. Well, you. I mean, you've done a lot, man. And you've worked with a lot of musicians. <laughs> yeah. and, and labels and managers and publicists. So... Yeah, it's it's those types, especially booking agents, I think, that just have, they've been so connected to so many different kinds of people. You have, like, mm-hmm. I mean, we're not even, we're not digging too deep. Like, I know you have real deal stories, but yeah, some yeah. of those stories aren't we meant got, to be recorded. Keep it like, surface. Those yeah, are, those no are doubt. Other, those are other people's stories to tell. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Yes, that was awesome. I want, I want to thank my guest, John Chavez, uh, for coming through and being on the house list what a treat and um, we finally did it and it was what an awesome great conversation that was Uh, I also wanted to let you know that at the beginning of the show I played a song sort of dissident uh, noisy loopy kind of track that was John's band the punks the punks um, and that was a song called Air It Out. There's actually a music video for it if you want to seek that out. I don't know if John wanted me to put it out there like that. That came out on Kill Rockstars. Uh, so I opened the show with that. We're going to close the show with a song by the Vivian Girls from their self-titled debut um, on In the Red from 2008, if I'm not mistaken, called uh, Where Do You Run To? Um, I, I feel like that this sort of sums up a phase in, in John's booking career as an agent. And uh, it kind of set a nice tone. So I wanted to close the show with that, um, at least a portion of it. And I also wanted to let you know that I appreciate you guys for listening. If you made it to the end, please subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on SoundCloud. It's also on the Stitcher app if you listen to podcasts that way even on google play so there's some ways for you to check it out if this was your first time listening please subscribe rate it on itunes leave a comment those things help i appreciate it i wouldn't ask otherwise um i uh just love doing these and want to continue doing them that's all my humble request so since this is also like basically not just our 25th episode, which is a, a landmark in my opinion. Obviously, there's millions of podcasts out there and there are hundreds and hundreds of episodes in front of us. And not that I'm competing by any means, but uh, you know, getting each and every one of these off the ground is a bit of an accomplishment. 
because uh, we all gotta strive and, and and you know I'm not making any money I'm spending money doing this and I run my own booking agency as well the Augustine agency and I book tours and that's a very time-consuming um, line of work so fitting these in is is it's both a, a, a treat it's very fulfilling but it is like a side job in itself so uh, to get to 25 is pretty awesome and I'm glad I could share it with John and it sort of hitting at South by Southwest the week of South by Southwest so hopefully we get this out to you in time because you know we also got to coordinate our own schedules just to get this all edited and engineered with my man CJ so I wanted to share really quickly um, a story uh, from uh, one of my previous South by Southwest experiences just because I'm seeing, you know, especially with the blizzard that came to New York or rather the uh, snow ice storm and how traveling there is just such a pain in the ass. Even on the best conditions, it's, it's still a pain in the ass. And I've been there a lot of different ways, traveling with bands, flying in, driving in so on and so forth, uh, tour managing groups into it. But in 2013, uh, when I was working at Inland Empire Touring as, as an agent, I went down with my coworker and good friend, Joe Price, who now works at Ground Control and is an awesome agent with lots of years under his belt. And he's just a great, great human being. So shouts to Joe. So we, uh, we went down together and were... We got a hotel. We, were, you know, both had our own handful of bands to tend to and to uh, to oversee and our own showcases and so on and so forth. So I think we both planned to leave Austin on the Saturday, not wait until Sunday. You know, for the most part, people will go down like and they'll leave like on Monday or they'll stay even later. I thought we were going to be slick and kind of slip out before the big rush, you know, essentially. Although it's like, I don't even think that's even possible anymore. There's just so many people coming and going. So we had like, uh, you know, some some stuff that Friday, showcases. And, you know, still had to be out and up late regardless. And uh, But we had to catch an early flight in the morning. I think we even got like a 6 a.m. flight or 7, something crazy like that. And uh, we call, uh, you know, we wait until the morning time and call a cab, a taxi, you know, and the taxi system in Austin is sort of ridiculous as well uh, for what it's worth. No shots, but still, it's just like, you know, coming from New York City and like, you know, their taxi system is just, it's just kind of archaic. And uh, especially during South by, you know, you're, you'll be lucky to catch a cab. And we were not lucky we, we did not uh, luck out. In fact, our cab never showed up. We waited like an hour stressing out like before the sun came up, being like, yo, man, like what's up with this this cab? It's not, uh, it's not showing up. Like we're looking at our watches, looking at each other, like shaking our heads. And um, the time kept creeping closer and closer to us, like missing the window for our flight and as as it as it may be as it as it was uh that fucking car never showed up at all and we were livid and subsequently we we uh we we basically missed our flight we we eventually got another car and had to wait another crazy long amount of time and still got there in the early morning but we were like okay still early it's like eight o'clock or something 
uh, we'll just get standby to New York. There's so many flights going out. Well, we're, we're bound to get on one. It's still early in the morning. Our line of thinking was like, you know, it's Saturday morning. So there's people that are, have been out. They're drunk. They're hungover. They've been partying all night. They're going to miss their flight. We're going to get on this flight. You know, it's, it's all good. You know, yeah, no worries, dude. Oh, okay. First flight's packed. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Those like really early birds. Like, you know, they're, they're together. They weren't partying. So, you know, um, maybe on the, the, the next one, like at, at 10 o'clock. Uh, and then that just kept going and going and going. And no, no one, we were just on standby flight after flight, seeing all types of cats go past us, getting on flights. Saw a track and talked to him for a while. We, he was, he was going back to New York at the time. I mean, it's just like a, a host of, of different performers and artists. I even saw Nelly, I think. Uh, waiting to get on his on a flight like uh, the same kind of flight that we were getting on so we sit there and we wait and yo it's like 10 12 hours goes by on standby in the Austin airport which is a small airport and then after a while if you spend that much time kind of pacing around the airport you know you start feeling kind of like shit and it's a small airport you know you start breathing in that airport air and you can't really leave to go outside or anything like that after a while we were just like we we got to the point where it was like five o'clock or 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 almost six o'clock it was dinner time damn near so joe and i looked at each other after having a couple beers and kind of just wasting the day at the airport on standby not getting on anything we're like we're gonna have to just get a hotel across the street at this hilton at the 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 airport hotel which is the only hotel right by the airport so we go we do that begrudgingly we're both pissed off but you got to do it get our shit and uh and walk across the basically the airport parking lot and check in it's like all right cool well we're gonna get on that next flight in the morning tomorrow morning at 6 a.m so we're gonna like set our alarms four o'clock in the morning we're not gonna we're not gonna miss this you know we're going to treat ourselves. Oh, they got a pool? Shit, man. It's hot. You know, let's just like hang out, you know, hang out by the pool for a while. You know, I jumped in the pool. I'm like, fuck it, man. Like, I'm going to, if if we got, you know, after that ordeal, like, I'm going to kick back a little bit. You know, got out. Let's get some steaks. So we, we went back into the, into like the hotel restaurant and like started having drinks at the bar. We got steaks. We're just like, you know treat ourselves a little bit because that this is some bullshit and then uh uh finally that morning comes by just like feeling like shit spending way too much time in the in the airport we get on these flights it's like the first flight out of the day and if it is not the most insane turbulence i've ever experienced in my life the whole fucking trip and i've been on i've flown a lot and had some insane international uh turbulence experience on those on a on giant planes like to japan a couple of times where that japanese trip uh turbulence is is like another world of fright but this is such a small plane uh, the non-stop flight from austin to new york city many many people do that all year round and i don't know if it was it but basically for us actually yes it was like a tornado watch and you know how you can see the tornado you can monitor it on the weather channel and basically we're both like 
in our seats watching the little TV screen monitors in front of us of this fucking huge tornado that's like right under the uh, flight path. And we're just like getting all the residual um, wind. And it's like an insane white knuckle experience. So like, like the whole time. And it's like, I never want to fly again. Uh, and praying that we we uh, get home safe. And it's like a two-hour flight. I mean, it's like not that crazy. Or a three or something. So, man, we finally get back to New York just being like, oh, my God, like kissing the ground of the sidewalk of, of JFK, you know, just not giving a fuck. Like, Joe, man, I'm so happy we made it, dude. I didn't think we were going to make it after all that and being in the... Uh, airport for 12 hours yesterday just just wanting to like jump through the window and shit so we we say our goodbyes y'all see you at work i'll see you in the office you know uh tomorrow or the day after like i need to take a fucking break you know either way coming home from south by you you always have to like take some recuperate a, a day at least and i get home and like an hour later and it's like evening time now after this fucking huge ordeal following South by exhausted on top of everything else and just being so freaking frazzled and and wired from this insane turbulence thinking the plane was going to fall to pieces in the sky uh, and this was it and I start getting home I'm like damn man I feel really shitty I don't feel well uh, I guess stop. I really kicked my ass this year. You know, I, uh, I shouldn't have eaten so much barbecue um, or whatever. Uh, and I'm not even a, a hardcore partier by any means. I'm pretty modest uh, across the board. And uh, I'm like, man, I don't think, I think something's wrong. Uh, and then, like, <laughs> for like the next six to ten hours i'm just throwing up non-stop the whole time all night long to the point where like late in the night i hit up joe i'm like joe are you sick man like are you okay because something is definitely wrong with me and this dude had the exact same thing going on so we're just like it, it was like a week of like insane flu insomnia like insanity and this poor guy and me is like we're exactly the same experience yet for weeks and weeks after that I, 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 we were trying to track what the hell happened because we spent like all this time stuck in the airport together and then went to this hotel and had the same meal and like had the same drinks and it was just like this um disgusting <laughs> experience that was separate yet you know uh, simultaneously happening to both of us and that, um, that's my South by Southwest story. Uh, and so if you're down there, if you're, if you're traveling, coming back, or if you're continuing on the road from there, just be safe, be careful what you eat and drink when you're, when you're, uh, when you're down there and don't, don't be staying at that, that Hilton across the street from the airport. It's, that's no go. Uh, now cipher, please don't stay there. Um, shout out to Joe. And I want to thank John again. And thank you guys for listening and listening to my little story. We're going to close this out with the Vivian girls. I'll see you guys next week. Only here on the house list. Later.